there you go. We in the house. Akira. Nice. What's cracking, gang? How you doing? Cracking baby, when dear in the gallery, it's a beautiful day to be alive. How the, the goodness of you, how the very, very goodness art thou, thou beautiful thing, uh, is a beautiful day to be alive, right here. And we are broadcasting <laughs> live from the peak of what we call the human civilization. I'm in Mexico, I'm in Quintana Roman, Playa del Carmen. We've got Jordan B in the house, that's perfect. We got Dirk from Texas in the house. We got Joe Rooney in the house. We got Plan and Hippie in the house. We got Samuel Miller in the house. Broken Umbrella, Jacob, Nathan, Platinum. All of you all, good to see you. It's a beautiful day, and I thought, well, here's what happened: is I got the uh, multiple notifications from multiple people saying, "Hey, there's a new doctor. There's a new doctor, doctor, doctor." JRE Doctor, new JRE Doctor, new, new Peterson on JRE. And I was like, oh man, how am I going to have time to listen to that? I have uh, all these things that need doing. There is no way I'm going to find three hours to do that. And then I was like, oh man, I need to stream this weekend. And then I was like, oh hey. Oh hey. We could do both. We could listen to the new... Dr. Jordan Lee Peterson on the JRE podcast and stream and I could play some delightful accompanying music you know and uh, that might be like a delightful a delightful way to spend an afternoon how about that Platinum Hippie says love your work bro you are breathtaking God bless you what up Nathan Dunn what up Smiller uh, who else we got in the house we got Shecky we got 2076 we got Austin Zumbrana Chipsy uh, thanks for the meaningful heads up, says Austin. Hey, 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 hey. We got Sheila in the house. What's up? It's an amazing day, says Dirk. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So delightful to see you all here. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. You know? If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And speaking of which, let's kick off the broadcast. Before we get into the podcast, let's listen to the brand new single just dropped. The Cure of the Dawn. Kurt Vonnegut. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Music, please, please, please. Shout out to everyone in the Discord. Link is in the description of the broadcast. What up, Vipo Money says, man, your work is amazing. God bless you. Now, every lecture I've ever given, has included my tribute to my uncle Alex, my brother and kid brother, who was a graduate of Harvard and a wise man, a distant insurance salesman in Indianapolis. He was childless. 
alcoholics found objectionable about so many human beings is that they so seldom noticed it when they were happy. And so we would be sitting under an apple tree, for instance, on a July afternoon drinking lemonade and, you know, talking about this and that, and it's practically buzzy like honeybees. And alcoholics would stop everything and say, everything and say, wait a minute, stop, stop, stop. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. I don't know what is. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. I don't know what is. And so he would do that again and again, and it was very good advice, and I've taken it up. And I hope that you will take up this habit, too, of noticing when things are really awfully nice and say, if this isn't nice, I don't know what it is. And say, if this isn't nice, I don't know what it is. This is nice. I don't know what it is. That's brand new. Cure the tone of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, some of you may remember me making that on stream in Costa Rica. Shouts out in the chat if you were there when we were when we made that in stream on Costa Rica. It was unplanned. It was a, a moment, and uh, and it led to that. That's actually a song I've been wanting to make for for decades, decades and decades. Ever since I first read, uh, I had a Kurt Vonnegut. It was I can't remember. It was like a collection of essays or something. It was a very thin book had like a sort of cartoon of him on the front it's in storage in wales along with the first 30 years of my life so i don't have access to it but he told that story in that book and uh and i wanted to make it into a song then you know it was nearly a song on uh on my which album was it second album it was nearly a song on the second album and then i thought it would make more sense on the third album and then i didn't make that album you know anyway i thought I've been wanting to make that song for a long ass time. You know, I've had that that philosophy of noticing when something is awfully nice and saying, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. I've, I've had that since then and it has served me very, very well, you know? And uh, I hope it serves you well, you know? As it serves so many out there, you know? Shouts out to the uncles, that's right. We've got love for the uncles in the chat right now, you know? 
Much love for the uncles. It's true, you're more powerful than you think, you know? Shouts out to the uncles. Shouts out to uh, my uncle Gene, the lone wolf, says 2076. Exactly. Big up Joe Petrakovich. Thank you for the super chat, says uh, the dawn. That's what's up. So yeah, that, that track is out now on all platforms, streaming, download, etc. You know, if you subscribed on the Bandcamp, you'll already have a high quality file of that in your collection. Yes, you will. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to go in on this. Uh, before we do, uh, we have a sale, January sale running for uh, two more days or something on MeaningWave.com. It only just started a couple of days ago. Our January sale started like at the end of January because, you know, we're innovators and thought leaders in the space. Uh, use the code JAN, J-A-N, to get 20% off your order at MeaningWave.com. Get yourself something to fly. Like, say, this, like a nice shirt, like this one. We've got lots of nice shirts. You know what I mean? We've got all manner of beauteous things. Get over to MeaningWave.com, open up another tab, head over, have a look around. Hey, if you've got a favorite MeaningWave record, chances are we've got uh, the, the artwork from that record on a t-shirt now in the Wave Art Collection, you know? So you might like that, or you might want to get yourself a velour tracksuit. Velour tracksuits in the house. Edmund Thunder says, ooh, not late. You right on time, baby. You right on time like Black Box in 89. Did you notice, by the way, that I did not begin the broadcast late? I was right on time like Black Box in 89. That's nice. If that ain't nice, I don't know what is, you know. That's because I uh, spent hours last night setting up. I wasn't sure I was able to do this kind of a show, you know, the kind of a show where we... We essentially live DJ score. I think I was the way I was doing it before involved uh, a bunch of technology that is in Texas, uh, not here, you know. But I managed to hook something up, you know. So let us pray to the gods that it works. I think it will, you know. So let's pray it will. Let's do an international high five before we begin. I know you'll love that. Uh, shout out to everyone in the chat. Let me know where you're from, where you're at, and how you're feeling on this fine day. Not where you're from. Let me know where you're at and how you're feeling. Let me know where you're at and how you're feeling on this fine, fine-ass day, you know? It is a fine-ass day. Uh, Shecky says, the last design with all those butterflies. So beautiful. The latest design. Yeah, that's the artwork for if, that, if, uh, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Uh, which I made. And uh, the cat in the middle... That's, that's our cat, Dakota. That's the cat that my son, Hercules, the street cat that he befriended and then we adopted. So if you check out the art for If This Isn't Nice, I Don't Know What Is, that I, that I made so, so lovingly, uh, that is Dakota, the Mexican street cat. In there, you know? Uh, Shaky says, Uncle Pete taught me how to handicap them ponies. I don't know what that means. I'm terrified. Oh my goodness. Uh, Chip C loves the Scott Adams tracks. Shouts out to you. Uh, Cypher Cypher says, my half-uncle tried to teach me skateboards when I was 12 and he was 17. Didn't work, but all the balance I have, I owe to him. Shout out to him. Cracking Tune, Crack Tune, Crack Tune says, picking up a shirt now, bro. Shout out to you. Wisdom be thy name, Crack Tune. Up in the room. What up, old stock white Canadian? Says, I do not know what the Don is cooking for the future, but I can tell you this. Unacceptable is hats. That's the song that came out last week with David Goggins. We might play that later. But we're going to do this. Um, we're going to do this. 
Chip C says, I'm telling you, ACD, we need to get the Muffet bus together to get your stuff from Texas to Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got to work that out. Uh, it's more complicated than just loading up a van. You have to do all this crazy uh, stuff at, in, uh, at the border. They're actually very serious on the Mexican border about things going into Mexico. Yeah. Uh, Trinidad says, blessed AF. Shouts out to Mike Can at level one. Level one can download the mixtapes like the, like the uh, Meaning Pill Matrix mixtape mix we just dropped. You can download all the mixtapes for free uh, if you're at level one. I suppose it's not free. You're paying five bucks a month. Either way, five bucks a month and you get a ton of mixtapes and access to all the emojis and stuff. It's a great deal. Uh, question, will you be releasing Decentraland Party set number three? That would be nice. Yes, good point. And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. We've been collecting footage from the live Decentraland Metaverse performance, multiple camera angles. It was epic because it started raining when uh, Sound of the Rain needs no translation came up. You know. But yes, that is that is coming. And thank you for asking. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, Frank the Rabbit says, heck yeah, awesome. We've got um, old stock white Canadians in Montreal. Uh, Anas is in Morocco. Much love, much love to you. Cracktoon is in Asheville, NC. Amazing, getting even better. Uh, we got Cody King in Oklahoma. Know what I mean? We got Vidigi, VJDII in Tampa. Shout out to Tampa. There's a great cheap key for Young Gravy song about Tampa. Trinidad's in Austin. You know, we've got people all over the place. Much love to all of y'all. Open up a tab, go meaningwave.com. Buy yourself something. Code Janet. Check out. Join me for a high five. Let's go. A three. A two. A one. S and indeed get it. You have a, a two-tone suit going on. Can You're I a tell wild you about man. This suit? Please do. Okay. Well, what's happening with that? The company made this for me. LGFG. They made me a dozen suits. Yeah. One for each rule from Twelve Rules for Life. Ah. The rules are printed on the back of this underneath ah. the collar. This is a heaven and hell suit, so it's quite fun. So Which one's is, hell? I'll show you in a sec. So this is <laughs> hell's red, Joe. Come on. Jesus. But that's not really red. Well, it's like you know, a magenta. It's stylish. Right? Yeah, it's okay. Hell's magenta. You know? Okay. Hell's yeah, magenta. it's designer hell. Ah, you nice. Know? So this is made out of sheep's wool, and this is made out of goat's wool. So that's pretty funny. And then in here you've got your basic heaven lining and your basic. Oh, okay. So, I don't think I've ever seen a man walk around with a. I think you're one up. My one up? Yeah, you're one up. Are you? No, that's no, good. You're good. It's, oh. it's, it's double breasted. Double breasted. Yeah, fancy. Yeah. yeah. Fancy. Got one suit with you in the lining too. Oh no. I was gonna wear it today. I thought about wearing it. It's a it's a black suit with platinum uh, wires in it, which is kinda cool. And inside it's got black and white images of like uh, really harsh, sharp sharp, harsh graphic images of you and Brett Weinstein and Ben Shapiro and Russell Brand and you know 
That's an assortment to the oh that whole Sam Sam Harris too. Thing. That's Sam's the guys, in there. Man. <laughs> Sam's in there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have hope for Sam Harris. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah, I hope he I hope he makes a comeback. I mean, he's not really going away. He's just got some weird opinions. Yeah, well, but there's you, there's plenty of that floating around. Well, you know, I think when you have like complex, fascinating brains, they go off in all kinds of different directions. This, don't you think? This is this is one of the dangers of being creative, right? Most mm. creative ideas are wrong, and a good section of those wrong ones are fatal. But Oof. now and then you get one that's necessary. So. Yeah, we were talking about the Twitter files before yeah. uh, we got rolling and uh, what the new stuff is. So the, the new stuff has something to do with AI and uh, some sort of content moderation? Oh yeah, well Tabby released some Twitter files today on, well, on, or, on Twitter obviously. And they're going through the code. Now I don't understand the technical details, but you, know, you don't exactly know when you see the output of a, of a, of a code-generated system, exactly what rules it's using to sort the information. I suppose that's the equivalent of shadow banning. And there's all sorts of, there was apparently all sorts of directives built into the code to amplify certain kinds of messages and, you know, de-amplify others. And so, apparently, Musk is doing what he can to to uh, clean that up. Uh, Ruben reported that the other day. Yeah. And then Tybee today, he was talking more about Russian collusion mm. fabrication. Yeah. So that's also real fun. Well, how about the one guy that was going after Trump, who it turned out was actually in collusion with the Russians? Oh, yeah, that's a rough one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah. Well, the best defense is a good offense, you know? And so. I guess. I guess. Yeah, I guess. Mm, I know. But We're it's in a crazy like, world. Why would anybody not think that that was going to come around to get them? Uh, it's amazing how often people don't think that you know what they're doing isn't gonna isn't gonna end up aimed squarely at them. Well, this Twitter thing, right? Like they never suspected that someone like Elon was gonna come along and buy Twitter, and then in an unheard of tactic, have a bunch of journalists review everything in all of their Slack meetings and all their emails, look under the code, look under the wiring under the machine, and find out how it was actually running yep. and. Well, I mean, the fact that anyone would ever think that any of this stuff is a good idea, that people don't understand, like, the dangers of censorship. They don't understand what, where this leads to. Yeah, well, we're seeing a little bit of that emerge on the right now, you know, which is kind of frightening to me. So I, I'm an admirer in many ways of what's going on in Florida, you know, with DeSantis. But him and Rufo, who I also think has got a bit of a clue, are trying to, what would you say, limit or even ban critical race theory. And the problem with that is you can't define it, right? Right. So how do you how do you control something you can't define? And the answer is you battle it out on the battleground of ideas. Because as soon as you start to try to define it and then try to censor it, well, first of all, that's just going to grow because that's how those things work. You know, like where does, where does critical race theory shade into Marxism? Well, who the hell knows? Where does Marxism shade into socialism? That's an even harder question. Then where does socialism shade into, you know, just being on the side of the working class? Well, all that's fuzzy beyond belief. And so once you get to the point where the government has to step in and regulate, say, what education systems are doing, you're already in deep trouble. And because I can't, I don't see how it can really be done. Because I, I can't define critical race theory. You know, I mean, more or less, you can get some sense of the cloud of ideas that's associated with it. But, but 
trying to draw the lines. How are you going to do that? And then, of course, you enable, inevitably, no matter what your goal is to begin with, you're going to control a certain form, let's say, of pathological communication, misinformation. That's just going to play into the hands of people who like to censor, and that's just as likely on the right as it is on the left. Mm. So, no, it's a real dangerous game. And is the problem, like, the term critical race theory is... It's open to interpretation. Yeah, well, it's often even hard, except in retrospect, to understand a lot of what these things actually are, you know, because new clouds of ideas emerge and they kind of have an animating spirit and they, ha they have a set of associated, what would you say, presumptions, and you can often only see what that is in retrospect. You know, it took me a long time to understand e whatever existentialism was enough to sort of define it, phenomenology, these different schools of thought that occupied thoughts of, uh, of psychological investigators over a couple of centuries, postmodernism, modernism, you know. It's, it's not an easy thing to, to extract out the gist of those and define them, plus, as I said, they have very fuzzy boundaries, so. Well, what I saw with DeSantis was there was, uh, he had a concern that they, that it wasn't just black history that they were putting into this critical race theory, but that he saw that there was queer theory which was in this thing that they were teaching in school. And like, what does that have any, how does that have anything to do with black history? Like, yeah. why is queer theory inserted Yeah, into well, that? I think I think the way those are linked is essentially through what you might regard as, well, it's an implicit Marxism, but it's even deeper than Marxism. So if you're a Marxist, you basically, you have a heuristic that simplifies the world. And that heuristic is that you can understand any social relationship from well, from an intimate relationship all the way up to the state by just dividing the parties, let's call them the narrative partners in a discussion or an interaction into those who are oppressed and victimized and those who are taking advantage of them and profiting. That's basic Marxist theory of economics. And there's obviously some truth in that because when systems become corrupt, that's how they operate, right? It's exploitation and victimization. And every system tends towards corruption. And so, and if you're if your eyes are open a little bit, or if you're, let's call it, if you've moved from naivety to cynicism, then you can see every interaction as a power dynamic. And then that drives, as soon as you have that established, that idea that the basic relationship is one of power, well, then you can see, well, there's no difference between what's happened to queer people in relationship to those in power and what's happened to black people in relationship to those in power. Mm. It's, but it's united by that underlying, that's why I always make a case for the domination of something like postmodernism and Marxism. You know, I've been criticized for that, but I think it's an accurate association. The postmodernists figured out, and they were right about this, that we see the world through a story. Now that turns out to be something unbelievably complicated, and I think all the top-end neuroscientists like Carl Friston are, what would you call, converging on this presumption that you have to see the world through a story. And the postmodernists actually figured that out, the French postmodernists, you know, Foucault and Derrida and people like that. But then they did something that was a sleight of hand, and this, was, this all happened in the 1970s. They said, well, we have to see the world through a story, and even if you're a scientist, you're not exactly objective because there's a narrative driving you work that you might be una unaware of, that's your implicit narrative, that's what might be implicitly biasing you, but um, they jumped to the conclusion that the underlying narrative was one of power, it's basically that all human relationships are predicated on power, you know, there isn't a more cynical viewpoint than that, 
And it's easy to take apart, you know, if you think about it for a moment, in a, in a practical sense. If your marriage is just based on power, first of all, it's an unpleasant place because it's, it's tyrant and slave. And second, like, good luck with that, because people aren't that easy to tyrannize, you know. Maybe you have a willing slave in your wife, but I doubt it. If you're just trying to play power games with her, she's going to fight back with everything she's got. And then if you have friends, it's like, that's a relationship of mutual exploitation, is it? Then you're just a bully with henchmen, and they're going to stab you in the back the first chance they get. You're a mob so, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. a mob leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, worse than that, even. A dictator. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a dictator. You're a dictator. You know? Uh, and... You know, people say, well, look at how successful dictator psychopaths can be. But I look at them and I think, well, that's your definition of success. Yeah, man. what is success? I mean, yeah. How, are You're you the biggest devil fulfilled? in hell. Yeah, are you happy? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, well the leader of a bad place might be the person who's worst off yeah. in some fundamental sense, right? They're the most corrupt. Isn't that funny, though, that the way we define success is power and, and money? Like those are like you, you look how successful they are. Yeah. Power and money, but a complete absence of love and trust and respect. And yeah. Well, it's basic it, human you know, dignity. Well, it's also it, it's also not really how people operate. So there's an anthropological literature on the formation of elders in uh, in say uh, traditional societies. Because you might ask yourself, you know, who becomes an elder? And if you were a Marxist cynic, you'd say, well those who used exploitation to dominate, like the priestly class or something like that. And that goes along with the supposition that, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. And some of that's obviously true, but a lot of it isn't. The elders aren't that at all. They're, they're the people who others go to spontaneously to ask, ask for counsel. Yeah. And then you ask, well, who do people naturally gravitate towards for counsel? And the answer is, well, productive, generous people who've managed their interpersonal relationships well. Because who the hell else would you go ask for advice if you had any sense? Like you might go ask the local dictator and kowtow to him if you need a favor to take somebody out, but if you're actually asking for counsel, you're going to ask someone who's decent and who's generous and who plays a reciprocal game. It's also the case, this is worth knowing too, the problem with a power game is that it's not playable, not in the final analysis. So Franz de Waal, the Dutch primatologist has showed even pretty clearly in chimpanzees, you know, you think the roughest, toughest chimpanzee rules the damn roost and he pounds everybody flat and he gets access to the females. And there's a little bit of truth to that because female chimps aren't sexually choosy, but the male chimps will chase weaker males away from them. And so if you are more powerful physically as a male chimp, you do have preferential mating access. But the problem with being a brute, even if you're a chimp, is that you have an off day and two of the chimps that you oppress band together and tear you into pieces. And so what DeWall found was that in chimp troops, the stable alpha can sometimes even be the smallest male of the troop. He'll ally himself with some of the dominant females. He makes networks that are essentially friendships, reciprocal friendships. And that gives him a stable position, not of power, but of authority. And that's definitely the case in functional human societies. It's not based on power. Now, it's tricky because if it degenerates, then it degenerates into a relationship of power. You know, and so that means that critics who make the claim that everything's about power are right in some sense when they're talking about nothing but corruption, but they're really 100% seriously wrong about the idea that it's power relation that 
constitutes the basis for the organization of any social interaction. You know, it doesn't work in your marriage, doesn't work with your friends, doesn't work with your children, doesn't work with your business partners, doesn't work with your customers, it doesn't work with politicians, although it's... Here's another twist that's complicated. So imagine you have a population of people who basically cooperate reciprocally. So, you know, I do you a favor, you do me one, and maybe we figure out how to advance each other across time. That's a good game, right? Fair trade plus advancement. That's a good definition for a good marriage. Okay, but now you have a community of people like that together. Okay, now it opens up an ecological niche, and the niche is psychopathy. And the psychopath comes in and pretends that he's a productive, generous reciprocator. But he's not. He's just an instrumental manipulator. But he can get away with it because there's enough wealth generated by the cooperators, you know, the honest cooperators, so that there's a space for someone to exploit the system. And that stabilizes that 4% of the population. So, you know, across the world, 4% are, of people are close enough to clinically diagnosable psychopaths. And that's probably better than being, you know, paralyzed by fear and anxiety and just staying in your bed. Better in terms of reproductive success, let's say, and maybe even success in general. But it's not a good game because in the real world, most psychopaths get found out pretty quickly. So, you know, you can screw somebody once and maybe twice, but then they figure it out and then word gets around. And so in the real world, two things happen. Psychopaths have to be itinerant so they can find new people to exploit. And the other thing that happens is, generally, non-psychopathic males who are fairly aggressive keep the psychopaths under control. And so, part of the reason that women like men who have some capacity for aggression, but who are still productive and reciprocal, is that men who are productive and reciprocal, who have some capacity for aggression, can keep the real monsters at bay. So it's hard on women, eh? Because they have to navigate that really thin line between productive generosity and the capacity for aggression that's a really tough thing to navigate that's basically the story of beauty and the beast the disney movie right because gaston is a narcissistic psychopath and the beast is someone capable of aggression but he's not tamed into a reciprocal relationship it's also the basis of the most fundamental female pornographic fantasy and the google guys figured that out you know 15 years ago when they analyzed billions of sex fantasy searches by men and women. Men go for visual imagery, but women go for story. And the story is the same. It's, you know, innocent young woman uh, with a lot to offer, but kind of hidden, finds some male, five categories of men, vampire, werewolf, pirate, surgeon, billionaire. And he's, you know, kind of an aggressive guy, but he's capable of being tamed into an intimate relationship. That's the standard female pornographic fantasy. It's pretty much the standard fantasy of romance. And so you can see, you know, what women are trying to do in that situation is they're trying to find some guy that's got the capacity for mayhem, but that's under control, but who can integrate that into a productive, generous, reciprocal relationship. So, yeah. It's fascinating because that, the, the capacity for violence and the capacity for aggression is one of the things that's been actively muted yeah. in our male population. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a, it's there's a bunch of reasons for that, and I, some of them turn into positive feedback loops, like they're sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. So there's a lot of women out there who've never had a positive relationship with any male in their life, 
right? And maybe not only not a positive relationship, but really a series of pretty negative relationships. And so women like that are very leery of any expression of male ability of any sort, because they can't distinguish productive competence from arbitrary power. And because they're trying to defend themselves because they've been hurt repeatedly, maybe they come from broken families and catastrophically arranged neighborhoods. You know, one of the tactics that can be used in that situation is just to try to do everything you can to distance yourself as much as you can from any display of male ability because it can't be distinguished from psychopathy. It can't be distinguished from the use of power. It takes a sophisticated woman to be able to make that distinction. So the other thing you see too is that young women are much more likely to be seduced by psychopaths than older women because the psychopaths mimic competence. That's what a narcissist does too. They're, all, they're confident. And women read confidence as a marker of competence, and that's reasonable, but that opens up the, what would you, it opens up a space for exploitation. Because if you can mimic confidence, that's false confidence, narcissistic false confidence, then you look competent, and that works particularly well on naive young women. Mm. And of course, they get exploited by people like that, and they think, well, that's what men are like. Right. Then women like that, you know, they have boys and then they're afraid of the boys whenever they express anything looking like masculine competence and they basically emasculate the boys and then the boys get bitter and then they mistreat women and the whole bloody thing just spirals out of control. And so, and that's where we are. That's where ways. we are. <laughs> what a strange yeah. place to be, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, well, yeah. unintended consequence of familial breakdown, that's a huge part of it. So we decided to have this conversation because of what's going on with you in Canada. Oh yeah. And that, that your clinical psychology license is in jeopardy because you have opinions about politics that they disagree with, which is a very dangerous and bizarre turn of events. Well, it's your fault actually, you know. I oh. told you I think a week or so ago when we talked about this. That, okay, so let me give you some background okay. here. So I want to know how it's my fault. <laughs> I will. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. A lot of things are your fault, as it turns out. Oh, so, no. Yeah, yeah. So the, the College of Psychologists has basically levied what are equivalent to about 13 lawsuits against me simultaneously. Now, the reason I call them lawsuits is because there are actions undertaken on behalf of a complainant. Now, the complainant can be anyone anywhere in the world who complains about me for any reason. They don't have to be former clients. They don't even have to be anybody I've ever met. They don't even have to have met anybody I've ever met. So, you know... So it could a, be someone online. Well, it is. All this is pretty much... All these complaints are someone online. None of them are my clients, although half of them claim to be falsely. And the college didn't throw out their complaints despite that. So, which is really quite interesting. And what so, are the complaints? Well, okay, let, let's see. Uh, the... One complaint is about the tweet I made about Ellen or Elliot Page, and when I said that a criminal physician cut off her breasts and that pride was the sin, so now I'm in trouble again because I just said the same thing. One was about uh, Sports Illustrated cover, where they yeah. featured that overweight model, and I tweeted out, not beautiful, and um, I guess that was something like fat shaming. I don't remember exactly what the, what the, what the charge was. And then I criticized Justin Trudeau and a former staff member of Justin Trudeau and Jacinda Ardern. I made a joke about her coming. I was going to New Zealand and the New Zealand leftist press was freaking out. And I made this joke about bringing my alt-right trolls to New Zealand. And, and then I put in parentheses, or maybe they're just, you know, ordinary people who are trying to clean up their rooms. So apparently that was 
broadcasting profession into disgrace. And then they submitted one complainant from the U.S. submitted the entire transcript of our last discussion. So, you know, I don't know how to defend myself against that because apparently everything I say and apparently everything you say too is bringing the profession of psychology into disgrace. And I think they're most upset in that case about uh, my comments about the inadequacy of climate models. And so, you know, what that has to do with my clinical practice is questionable to say the least. And so, anyways, does that cover it? Yeah, it yeah. seems like this climate thing is a very rigid ideology that one must subscribe to wholesale. Yeah. You, you can't have any nuanced opinions on it. and You can't yeah. have any... Oh, it's no, a religion. No it's a religion. Yeah. It's a, actually, it's a, it's a pseudo... It's a partial pseudo-religion. And, and I, I mean that technically. I'm going to write about this to some degree, and I'm writing a new book, which will come out in November, called We Who Wrestle With God, and I'll cover that in this. But Alex Epstein, who wrote Fossil Fuel Future recently, comments about this a bit. So the basic structure of the quasi-religious belief, and so this is the set of initial presumptions. That's a way of thinking about it. You know, we were talking about how ideas are structured earlier. The Marxists believe that everything's about power. There's a narrative at the base of any belief system, and the climate... Uh, the climate pseudo-religion is based on characterization of nature as something like a hapless, uh, what would you call, hapless, defenseless, fragile virgin. The, uh, the industrial activity of mankind is, is characterized as something like a rapacious, uh, power-mad, uh, yeah, 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 uh, demolisher of natural virginity and beauty. And then the human being is, the individual, is characterized as nothing but a, you know, a devouring mouth whose activity runs contrary to the, to the untrammeled beauty of the planet and that supports the activity of the tyrannical patriarchy. That's basically it. And so the reason that narrative has force is because it draws on underlying religious archetypes. And so to characterize the world properly, you do need to characterize the positive aspect of nature because you have to live in something approximating a reciprocal harmony with nature. Because if you just eat everything and you know, devour everything in your local landscape, well, then you die. So that's a bad idea. So you have to have some sense of the value of nature. Now, you also have, some, have to have some sense of the fact that if you were dropped in the jungle naked in the Amazon, you'd be dead in about 48 hours. So you also need a figure to characterize the negative element of nature, and that's completely absent from the environmental myth. That's part of what makes it pathological. And then, with regard to the rapacious tyranny, let's say, well, you know, any industrial system or any human organization can exploit the natural world to the point where that's not sustainable, and it can become oppressive and tyrannical. That's the evil king, ancient part of religious mythology going back as far back as we can chase it. So you need a representation of the negative aspect of society because, you know, you go to you send your kids to school and they kind of get turned into these cookie cutter kids and that crushes their innate, uh, what would you say, difference and beauty and it's all the pain of having to be socialized and you have to understand that there is this oppressive element of culture. And so, but then, you know, you should also wake up and notice that you've got the wise king too and that means you put you plug in your damn 
toaster in the morning and the electricity works and you go out on the street and everyone isn't rioting and you know there's workmen who are knee deep knee deep in the sludge trying to keep everything going and you're not starving to death like everybody on the planet was in 1860 and so a little gratitude for the positive end of the patriarchy is in order too and that's completely absent the environmental view and then with regard to the individual it's like well of course you can be a selfish, impulsive, hedonistic consumer and you can facilitate the rapacious tyranny as a consequence of that rape of the planet, but by the same token, you know, we're not a cancer on the face of the earth, we're not a virus that's mutating and taking out the planet, you know, and we're not trapped in a Malthusian nightmare and you got to give credit where it's due and, you know, there's an element of people, of everyone that's noble and and generous and kind and productive and capable of living in a well-ordered state in something like sustainable and productive harmony with nature. You only get half that story. Now, if you have no comprehensive underlying cultural narrative, which is increasingly the case in our society, and someone offers you when you're a teenager half the religious story, that'll just snap you up in a second because it helps you order your relationship with the world. Gives you a pathway too, eh? So Jean Piaget, great developmental psychologist, he called the last stage of adolescence the messianic period, the messianic stage. Now, most people don't talk much about that, I think, because they they don't know what to make of Piaget's claim, but he was a real genius, Jean Piaget. And he said, you know, when, when you're making that transition from, from the group identity that you're chasing as a teenager to becoming an individual. No, and that's not a journey everyone takes because lots of people just get lost in group identity. You're gonna be looking for a pathway that's essentially heroic. And what that pathway should be is that you identify with your culture deeply. You are socialized deeply into the traditions of your culture, but you're also capable of transcending it. You know, so then you become a culture creator as well as a as, as a disciplined member of culture. But young people need to be offered something like a, well, a vision of destiny in order to catalyze their identity. And we're very, very bad at that, except on the ideological front. So the woke types come along and say, you know, the planet's a virgin, the great father's a tyrant. You could be a hero if you just stood up to that. And the kids think, well, I'd like to do something important with my life. And so they're just caught into that immediately. But because it's a one-sided story, it's, well, it's a, a one-sided, a one-sided religious story is an ideology. And a great so, representation of that is what they've done with Greta Thornburg. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's so funny, you know, because I thought 10 years ago, I thought, we live in the delusion of a, of a disturbed 13-year-old girl. How did that happen? And then, you know, Greta Thunberg showed up and I thought, oh, well, there we go. Now we've got the, we've got the, the 13-year-old. I feel sorry for her, you know, because, she was chased into this apocalyptic terror that we're trying to enforce on all our kids. And then you think about her position, you know, so now she's all afraid and her mother's facilitating that like mad. And then, you know, she announces her fear, her neurotic fear, essentially, it's driven by negative emotion. And, you know, Macron says to her, oh my God, Greta, you're absolutely right, bows. It's like, what the hell's a girl to think? You know, because what right. she really wants is to, freak out a bit and for someone calm and reasonable to say hey look kid you know the apocalypse has always been on us it's always the case that the future has the possibility of being dreadful but 
you know, we've conquered terrible things in the past and overcome massive obstacles, and there's no reason at all not to assume that we can do the same thing. That's a very important point. Well, yeah. It's, it's such an important point because there's never been a time ever where everything was perfect. Well, that's for sure. There's never been a time ever environmentally where the Earth was stable. No. If, if you go, I mean, stable, you know, currently kind of like guess what the weather's going to be. But if you look at like models of like thousands of years, it's never been flat. It's always been up and down. Oh, yeah. Well, up, the Earth was freezes. an ice ball many times. Yeah, many times. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, well. Randall Carlson was saying there's been times in our like distant past where the CO2 levels and the oxygen levels were so fucked up that we were close to losing all life on Earth. Right, right. And then this can, yeah, this can well, happen. See, the, the, the antithesis to that is to believe in something like the paradisal, the intrinsic paradisal stability of well-balanced Mother Nature. Right. It's like, yeah, a bit, but no, not really. There's a lot of variability, a lot. And a of lot. course, that kind of variability that's hard on people because you want a certain amount of stability so you don't die. Right, but, but it, it doesn't deny that human beings have an impact on this either. But no, no. Well, this is why, like, this is why I really respect Bjorn Lomberg, you know, because Lomberg's hard to grasp because he forces you to think complexly. You know, he says, yes. well, we don't have one problem, carbon dioxide, which is, you know, I don't even think it's clear that carbon dioxide is actually a problem, but we can leave that aside. That'll get me in trouble with the College of Psychologists again. But, you know, Lomberg says, it's look, a factor. You know, yeah, it's a fa it's a factor, yeah, yeah. But there's lots of factors, and God only knows what the most pressing problems that confront us truly are. When I, I wandered through the ecological sustainability literature about 10 years ago, and, you know, I concluded a couple of things. One was that the best way forward to a sustainable planet is to make everyone who's poor rich as fast as you possibly can. And that's no, Lomberg's Yeah, position. not yeah. to put limits yeah. to growth on, because right. it turns out if you get people above about $5,000 a year in average GDP, they start taking a long-term view of the future, instead of scrabbling around in the dirt trying to get lunch, you know? And you're gonna burn everything up around you to stay alive if you have to. Right. But if you, if you got a bit of wealth, and now you can think over, you know, maybe a 20-year period, which is quite the damn luxury, then you actually start being concerned about, you know, the quality, the aesthetic quality of the local environment. And so I was so excited when I found that data because I thought, oh, this is so cool. It means that we could have our cake and eat it too. We could work really hard to provide cheap, reliable energy, you know, at the lowest cost possible to the widest number of people worldwide. And the emergent consequence of that would be the whole planet would clean itself up. So that wouldn't that be great? Because we could make our goal the eradication of absolute poverty, which we actually done pretty good at eliminating over the last 15 years, but we could really make that a goal. And then one of the consequences of that, inevitable consequences, would be a greener and, and healthier planet. And then you think, well, why aren't we doing that? And that's a question, all right. And I think part of the reason is, I've been trying to understand the driving ideas underneath this globalist utopian tyranny that seems to be developing from the top down and I think it's driven at least in part by this religious vision that I already described you know that you have to construe culture itself especially industrial culture as the tyrannical father raping and pillaging everything in its way which is unbelievably dangerous way to think too one-sided and uh, the, the, the idea that you have to impose limits to growth on people in order to have a sustainable planet. And that's allied with a view that probably stems all the way back to people like Paul Ehrlich in the 1960s, who really believe, really believe, truly, 
that maybe the planet should only have 500 million people on it, or a billion, you know, in relative poverty, or two billion, barely scraping by, because otherwise they're going to be wrecking everything, and, you know, controlled by some top-down authority that makes bloody well sure that no one's consuming too much. And so when I look at ideas like that, that first assumption, you know, the planet has too many people on it, it's like, I don't like to hear people say that, because when I hear that, I think, okay, buddy, who exactly are you thinking about getting rid of? Oh, well, it's not like that. It's like, yeah, it's like that. It has to be like it's, that. It is absolutely like that. So, you know, it's easy to get all paranoid conspiracy theorists about the WEF, say, and maybe there's some utility in that, but, you know, I don't think anybody's sitting at Davos going, well, we, got, we got to scrap seven billion people. But if the underlying narrative is the one I just described, you know, virginal planet, tyrannical patriarchy and rapacious individual, and you believe, well, we're overpopulated like Paul Ehrlich has believed since really literally the mid-1960s, then how is it not going to be that the policies that you craft stemming from that narrative are colored by the belief that there's far too many people? Like, I've really felt that I've been at war for the last six months. And I would say it's war because what I observed happening in Europe when I was there last was that, well, you can see this, you don't have to be in Europe to see it, but it's more direct if you're there, is that it's pretty damn clear that the globalist utopians are willing to sacrifice the poor for the sake of the planet. You know, and they're doing that by cranking energy prices up through the roof, and that means that people die. Lomberg has estimated that three, maybe you have to turn your thermostat down by three degrees, right? Save the planet, we don't have enough energy. We'll pay you not to use your electricity between five and six, which is what they're doing in the UK. You turn your damn thermostat down three degrees, that sounds like nothing, but if you're old, that radically increases the probability that you'll get a respiratory disease and die. You know, and if the Europeans would have had a cold winter, and that could still happen, Lomberg estimated it'd wipe out 135,000 people. It's like, well, you know, we're just making energy more expensive. It's like, what do you mean you're just doing that? So imagine the economic system. It's a pyramid. There's a bunch of people at the top. They have almost all the money. That's par for the course for any productive system. Any system that's productive ends up with a distribution like that. It's pretty, it's like a law of nature. And then you move farther down the pyramid till you get down to the bottom where most of the people are, and they're barely clinging on to the edge of reality, right? It doesn't take much of a crisis to tip them into, you know, death. And then you crank up energy prices. Well, what happens is you just take a bunch of those people at the bottom of the distribution, the poor that the left is so, you know, hypothetically concerned with, and you just, they're just done. They go from barely hanging on to not hanging on. And their kids go from having some ghost of a chance of opportunity to having none. And I could see this coming. You really saw it happening in Germany and the UK, you know, where we have this absolute rat's nest of way more expensive energy. And, and this is where it gets extremely perverse. You know, you might say, okay, look, we have to save the future poor. And so now some of the present poor are gonna have to suffer. That's convenient for you if you happen not to be one of those poor people, but let's give the devil his due and say, okay. It's like, that'd be fine with me. Not really. That'd be fine with me if the consequence of your actions, raising energy prices, for example, actually pro produced an improvement in those things you wanted to improve. So for example, energy is more expensive, but now the air is cleaner. But that isn't what's happened in Germany. What's happened in Germany is energy is like five times as expensive and the coal plants are back on. 
So it's like, even by your own criteria for success, you failed and you did it at the expense of the poor. And, you know, the World Bank estimated, I don't remember how many months ago, it's probably nine months ago, that we're putting 350 million people at, on the brink of starvation because we're cranking energy prices up. And so for me, it's like, that's 350 million people. That's three times as many as the communists killed, you know, in their six decades of trying. And if, you're, if your cure for the planet is, well, you know, we got to put 350 million poor people in jeopardy just so that things are hypothetically better in 100 years, I think. Yeah, I don't think so, buddy. And also, it's a little bit too convenient for me that your prescriptions to save the planet are accompanied by this insistence that the only way forward to that is to give you all the power. It's like, there's a bit of a moral hazard in that, don't you think? It's like, I'm just saving the planet. Give me all the power. It's like, you want to save the planet? Or do you want the power? And let's, let's put the first, the second one first, because the probability that you're a saint or the Messiah is pretty damn low. So that's the danger of the Davos crowd. It's a very bizarre narrative that doesn't get challenged. And I, I don't hear this very nuanced, complex perspective, like the, what you're laying out right now. I don't hear that often. No, I don't hear it at all. I hear it from you and maybe a couple other people yeah. that I, I actively seek out. But you yeah. would think that when you're dealing with such a complex issue that you would want to see the most brilliant minds think out, how does this play out? Yeah, yeah, like, in, in, well, okay. What are so, the consequences? Well, so let's say, let's think about what, what mitigates against that. Okay, so first of all, young people are looking for a, you know, a productive and, and visionary pathway forward. We already covered that a right. bit. But then there's the, there's the dark side of that too. And the dark side of that for everyone is that our reputations are very important to us. They're our most crucial currency, you know? And what that means is that we're tempted to elevate our reputations in an undeserved manner. And we do that to gain social status with very little work. And, and so we're tilted towards being tempted by theories that provide us with an easy way forward to that. And so one is, well, I'm a good person. Well, how do I know that? Well, I'm concerned about the planet. Well, the, that's a complex problem, the planet, right? That's a trillion problems, yeah. not one. I'm concerned about the planet, therefore I'm good. But that's complicated, you gotta take it apart. No, you don't, you just say, well, the planet only has one problem. Well, what's that? Untrammeled industrial activity and the rapacious nature of the consumer. Okay, what's the output? Too much carbon dioxide. Okay, I'm against carbon dioxide. Well, bang, you're the messiah, you know, with no work. And then someone like Lomberg comes along and says, hold on there, guys. We got like 30 problems, not one. And we need to rank order the problems and we need to do a differentiated analysis. And your idiot interventions are gonna cause nothing but unintended consequences. And no one wants to hear that because number one, it's complicated. You gotta read the damn book and you gotta think through his arguments. And number two, well now, where are you gonna get your cheap moral virtue? You can't just be the Messiah by waving a band, you know, waving a banner that says, I don't like carbon dioxide. And so that, that runs against a very, very deep narcissism. And so that's part of what stands in opposition to people, especially people like Lombard. And that's accentuated by social media. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like gra yeah. greatly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, social media is a great place to garner unearned 
social reputation. Yeah. I mean, in, in, it can be gamed, and it is gamed. And we also even know the nature of the people who game it. There's a whole emergent psychological literature concentrating on dark tetrad traits. So we can walk through that a little bit. So the standard personality models that produce the big five, extroversion, eroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness, they were derived sort of with a primitive AI, that's a way of thinking about it, that looked for patterns of description across huge corpuses of linguistic data. How do people talk about each other? It turns out they talk about each other using five dimensions, and those are the dimensions I just described. But the people who derived the big five didn't use evaluative descriptors. They threw anything out that looked like a value judgment. So for example, you might say of someone, he's a good person, and you might say of someone else, he's a malevolent person. Those descriptors weren't included in the Big Five corpus because they were trying to derive a model of normative personality. Okay, so, but that meant that the pathological personality wasn't encapsulated or well-defined. Now, this guy Robert Hare, who worked at University of British Columbia, is world's leading authority on psychopathy, and he interviewed th hundreds and hundreds of psychopaths and was always fooled by the, by the way. And then he had a student, Del Paulus, who works at UBC, and Paulus developed a model of personality that base, was based on pathology, like on the dark side. And uh, he called that the dark triad. Machiavellianism, that means uh, Machiavellian is someone who, so let's say, if I was Machiavellian in our discussions, what I would have done was think, before I came here, I thought, well, you know, what can Joe offer me? And then I think, well, how can I play Joe with my language so I'm most likely to get what I'm, you know, the narrow, impulsive, selfish thing that I'm aiming at right now. So that's how a Machiavellian operates. A narcissist, that's the next part of the dark triad, is someone who wants social status without doing any of the work. They want all the attention. If you're dating a narcissist or in a relationship with a narcissist, they'll alienate all your family members and your mm. friends so that they get all the attention. And that'll just be the first of the games they play with you. Yeah. Then you have psychopathy, and the psychopaths are parasitical predators. And so the predator will take whatever you've got and the parasite will live off you. And then here's a parasitical ideological statement. Property is theft, a classic Marxist trope. Why would you say that? Well, if I want to live off you, the way I'm going to justify that ethically is by claiming, oh, you know, Joe, look how privileged you are. You've got all this money. You just, you just took that from the oppressed. And if I'm manipulating you so that I get some of your money, that's only just because, first of all, it's exactly what you did. And second of all, well, why not spread some of that wealth around? So that's Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy, dark triad. They've expanded that recently to add another dimension that was missing, sadism. And the sadist takes positive delight in causing pain to others. And the lulls culture, L-U-L-Z, the lulls culture online is a culture of sadistic, Machiavellian, narcissistic psychopaths. Lulls, lulls. meaning like the, people are joking around shitposting. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. it for the lulls. And it's right. the plural of LOL, laugh right. out loud. But like, if you look at the Urban Dictionary, for example, the definition of lulls is positive delight in the suffering of others. It's like, yeah, it's sadistic. And, and oh. bloody well, social media just facilitates like... I, know I never thought of lulls as being sadistic. It's, it's in and of itself, it's not a sufficient marker, right? You, you have to have like six or seven things going on before it's clear that you're manifesting this underlying tetrad of personality traits. Like if you use the odd acronym and you're throwing out a 
you know, a joke at someone. That this is a habitual pattern of doing nothing but provoking people online and using deception and lies to do it to attract attention to yourself. You know, it has to be a very consistent pattern. But Paulos, first of all, and his crew of researchers and people who've been influenced by him, have laid out this four-dimensional structure of the dark side, let's say. And they've shown that hyper-users of social media, Instagram, for example, and, and people who do a lot of anonymous shit posting, are characterized by, you know, what, what would you call it? Uh, domination by those four traits. And part of the reason for that, this is very, very dangerous to our whole society, I think, is that you gotta ask yourself what keeps the psychopaths under control in the normal population. And the answer seems to be, especially on the male side, is that narcissistic aggressive men get put in their place by non-narcissistic aggressive men. And that usually has to do with something like the threat of physical intervention. You know how it is if you get a bunch of guys together. I can make a joke about you. You know, and I could even make a joke that was, uh, it sort of put you down. But I, the joke would have to be funny. You'd have to have the opportunity to reciprocate and you'd have to believe that I was doing it in good spirit. Because if I just used the opportunity to, you know, stick the knife in, we're not gonna get along with each other very long. And we know that, and men know that when they talk to each other. And so part of what keeps dialogue among men civilized is the possibility that it won't be civilized if it goes too sideways. Everybody knows that, but there is none of that online because anybody can post anything about anyone, no matter how denigrating and derisive, especially if they do it anonymously, and there's zero consequence. In fact, quite the opposite. If they're good at it, they get a lot of attention, and the social media companies will monetize it. And so not only is it not inhibited, it's actually facilitated. And this isn't a trivial problem, because if the psychopaths multiply enough, they take the whole society out. Mm. So I think virtualization enables psychopathy. And it's worse than just the trolling bit. That's bad enough, because it pollutes political dialogue, and it makes everyone think that everything is more unstable than it really is. But online criminality is actually a terrible uh, plague. You know, I don't think there's an old person in North America who isn't being targeted by some gang of psychopaths who's, you know, documented all of their interests and their locale and who knows how much money's in their bank account and who's doing everything they possibly can at every second to leverage access to it. That's just happening continually. So well, that's certainly algorithms, right, for a lot of people that get trapped into these sort of situations where people are constantly throwing at them things that are opportunities for them to either make money or yeah. get this or, or get avoid a refund pain. Or, yeah, yeah, get a refund. You bet. Or they yeah. befriend them. Mm -hmm. You know, they get they get it in and some lonely old character who's not co functioning cognitively co quite like he used to, you know, he gets sucked in by someone pretending to be his friend and offered a great investment opportunity. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very, very, very difficult to track this sort of thing online. So you get the real enabling of the criminals because how the hell if they're anonymous how the hell do you keep them you know how do you hold them to to account but and then the secondary derivation of that is something like trolling and that's really not so good either because if the psychopathic narcissistic machiavellian sadists are dominating the political discourse then ordinary people look at that and think oh my god everything's going to hell everyone's really extreme and really it's a non-random sample and so you know i can really see this in my own life you know, because if you just 
looked at me virtually, you'd think like I was the world's most embattled person in some way, you know, maybe not the world's most, but I'm up in the top 10 maybe. But in my real life, then that, like I don't have any problems. You know, I go around from town to town or from city to city and every interaction I have with people on the street is positive. They either don't know me, which is fine, or they do and then we have a positive interaction. And I've only had like three negative interactions with people in real life in the last six years. Like they stand out because they're not fun, but they're extremely rare. But online it's like, well, 50% of the people oppose Jordan Peterson. It's like, no, they don't. It's not, it's not even 1%. So it's a, we're building a virtual world that doesn't sample the real world very well. And that's not much different from building a delusion. So not good, very, very uns very unsettling. So, That's Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly Twitter before Elon Musk came. Yeah, on. well, Twitter's better, but it's still quite the snake pit. Yeah. You know, I, I, what I, one of the things I, I think might be done about that. See, I don't think that. I've I've made this claim on Twitter that that uh, there's something cowardly about anonymous posting, and I'm not going to retract that because I believe that in 99% of the cases that's true. Now people say, well. You know, if you're a whistleblower, you have to be anonymous. And what about people in totalitarian states and or yeah. in, in a company? Well, same, that's the whistleblowing problem, I think. Yeah, 1% of anonymous posters are heroes, but like 80% of them are Machiavellians. And so... Well, but, 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 you know, there's also the factor of people that don't want to get in trouble at work. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, that's you know, kind of the whistleblower problem. But not even whistleblowers. I mean, people that just have opinions that You vary. mean they might get them in trouble with yeah. the College of Psychologists in yeah. Ontario, for example? Yes. Yeah, I know. And yes. So, well, I think one of the ways of handling that technically, what I'd like to see happen at Twitter, for example, you know, not that I'm in a position to know because I know it's complicated, is I think the anonymous types should be separated from the real people. So you could go visit them and see what they have to say, but the verified people, you know, their comments are either at the top or in a different place. Mm. Because I don't think that you can, I don't think that we can set up a playable game online when the anonymous trolls have the same rights as the verified responsible people. And I also think, and I don't know what you think about this, Joe, but you know, let's say you want to be a whistleblower, you want to say something that's going to get you in trouble at work. So you want to do it anonymously. It's like, maybe you're shirking your responsibility because maybe you have a responsibility, you know, and I could be persuaded alternatively, but maybe you have a responsibility if you have something to say, to say it in your own voice and to put yourself behind it, mm. you know, and maybe take, maybe you're taking the easy way out by not doing that. And, you know, I don't want to say that about every single person who posts anonymously, but, you know, tyranny emerges when normal, honest people are now afraid to say what they think. And when the tyranny is complete, the totalitarian state, no one ever says what they think about anything. Everyone lies all the time. And I see part of the pathway to that, the unwillingness of ordinary people to take the consequences of their truthful speech. You know, and I also think that's detrimental to them because I think that you find the adventure in your life. I think this is certainly true of you. You find the adventure in your life by standing behind your words. Like that's you, right? Those are your words. If you're telling the truth, that's actually you. And there's gonna be consequences. And sometimes they're gonna be negative, but do you really think that the consequences of telling the truth in your own voice are negative? You think the world's structured like that? 
Jesus, that's a dismal view, man. Well, it depends on the amount of autonomy you have. It depends on the amount of uh, the amount of resources you have. Yeah. I mean, like, look, let's take for example, uh, nurses. Nurses who had contracted COVID during the pandemic and had developed natural immunity. There was already studies that showed that that natural immunity was superior to the immunity that was imparted by the vaccine. But yet, they were being mandated to take this vaccine. Yeah. And a lot of them had some serious apprehensions about it yeah. that were logical, based on people that they knew that had adverse reactions. And now we're finding out more and more how common those adverse reactions were. Now, if these women stepped up or these men who are nurses stepped up and, and said something about it publicly, they would be fine. Yeah, well, look, when, when I was working as a clinician, I had lots of clients who were in that position. You know, they were, they're at work and they're being tyrannized by some, well, sometimes it was DEI types and sometimes it was DEI? just, yeah, diversity, ex inclusivity and equity. Oh. You know, the, the, woke, the woke ideologues who were coming for them and not letting them say what they wanted to say politically. And sometimes they're just being tyrannized by garden variety narcissists. You know, their bosses were that sort. Yeah. And uh, it was crushing them. And, you know, it's easy to say to people like that, well, just stand up to your boss, but they often, were rather constrained in their employment opportunities and they had families. And so you can't tell people, well, just go shoot off your mouth stupidly, get fired and taken out and mobbed and let your family starve. That's a pretty dumb strategy. But what we would always do in, in the therapeutic endeavor with someone in a situation like that was to situate themselves in their life so that they could afford to abide by their own truth. And so that might mean if you're in a job, let's say, where you, you don't have freedom of expression, you know, you get your, your resume or your CV polished up so that if necessary, you could make a lateral move relatively quickly. Maybe you send out some job applications just to test the market. And if you're not marketable, maybe you pop up your skills. And then maybe if you're in a position where you're vulnerable because someone else has got control over your tongue, maybe you work real hard to put some other ground under your feet so that you can't be taken out so easily. You know, like when I opposed the the uh, Bill C-16 in Canada, the mandatory pronoun bill. Like I knew, first of all, I knew that that would cause a psychological epidemic. I told the Senate that back in 2000 and 2017. I said, you guys don't know what you're doing here. You're gonna confuse a lot of adolescent young women and for every girl you hypothetically save who has body dysmorphia, and that'll be a vanishingly small number of people who are actually saved, you're gonna doom like 300. Of course, that's exactly what's happened. That's why the Tavistock Clinic shut down in the UK. You know, and so there was that, but but I also had set myself up, you know, because I had three streams of income. I had my university salary, I had a clinical practice, and I had a business, and that wasn't accidental. You know, I knew from my clinical practice that if you wanted to say what you had to say, you had to put yourself in a position where you couldn't be easily taken out by the mob or the tyrant. And then I would say, well, if you're not in a position where you can afford to say what you have to say, then that's an indication that you haven't positioned yourself optimally existentially, haven't positioned yourself optimally in life. You're too, your your fundamental, your foundation is too weak. And so, you know, maybe it'll take you three years to fix that, you know, so that now you've, you're grounded firmly so that a casual objection from your boss or even being fired isn't gonna take you out. It's not like that's easy, but I mean, Abiding by the truth isn't easy. The only thing, <laughs> but it's a lot more preferable than abiding by falsehood. That's the problem, right? Of course, abiding by the truth isn't easy, obviously. 
But, you know, what sort of devil do you let into your head if you abide by falsehood? And some of that might be just not saying what you have to say. That's not just, you know. Mostly we regard sins of commission as more egregious than sins of omission. You know, an outright lie is worse than just failure to say what you know to be the truth. But enough people, when enough people are silent about things they know they have something to say about, something to say something about, then you have a tyranny. And so, well, we haven't sorted through all this, you know, very well in our society, but I think it's morally incumbent on all of us to set up our lives so that we can afford to tell the truth. Mm. And if you can't, well, then you think, no, you're, you're, you haven't got the hat, the hatches battened down, right? The walls of your towers, your fort aren't high enough. You're not properly armed and you should be because you know, the mob's coming for you. And so is the chaos of nature and you bloody well better be prepared. And so I think if you're anonymous, you're, you're depriving yourself of the necessity to, to put yourself in a position where you can, you can tell the truth. Now, think about what happened to you. Now you tell me, you tell me what you think about this. I mean, I've been watching you for a long time and it's quite remarkable seeing the impact that you've had that keeps increasing across time. No, but my, my experience with you is that, you know, you have your opinions, your perspective, and you'll put them forward. But mostly what you do is you ask people questions that you actually have as questions, right? As far as I can tell, you're mostly trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And so that's honest. It's honest exposition. It's an honest, it's honestly exposes your own ignorance as well. And you know, you can take the audience along as a consequence of that. And for you, the consequence has been, you know, you've gone from just doing this podcast, sort of a side thing for you, at least when it started, to be in, I don't know if there's anybody who has more impact as a single individual on the media environment worldwide than you do. And that's all a consequence of actually truthfully admitting your own ignorance and saying what you had to say. And I know you were set up to do that because you had multiple streams of income, you know. You couldn't easily be taken out. You'd already accomplished things in a multitude of spheres. But think of the consequence of that. Think, well, did that happen to anybody who did everything they could to ask stupid questions and tell the truth? The answer is maybe. You know, so you don't do that. You hide and you have your reasons. You know, your family's at risk. It's like, fair enough, man. But you, you deprive yourself of the great adventure of your life and you contribute by remaining silent to the patho pathologization of the whole society. So, well, that doesn't seem like a very good route to me. You're making sense, but uh, it's a very, very complex situation for someone who has put all their eggs in one basket, like particularly someone who's a nurse, who yeah. has to work long hours, doesn't have another stream of income, and isn't yeah. really making enough money to have yeah. a uh, nest egg saved away. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, maybe a single, is a single mother, and right. yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a woman in, in Canada right now, a nurse whose name, unfortunately, I forget, who's being hauled over the coals by her college for, uh, you know, making the radical claim that there are only two sexes. And so, I know, and, and you know, part of the reason I'm pursuing this action with regard to the Ontario College of Psychologists, well, there's two reasons, really. Well, three. One is, you know, leave me the hell alone, guys. You've been on my case nonstop for seven years, not once before that, in 20 years of practice. There's no complaints ever levied against me. It wasn't until I started to become, you know, relatively well-known publicly that the college came after me. And seven years of that gets to be a bit much, especially now that there's 13 lawsuits compiled up and 
All of them are for political opinions and half of them have been put forward on false grounds. But, but even that's not enough for me to engage in the battle. The reason I'm engaging in the battle is, well, first of all, you want me to do social media retraining so I communicate better according to your experts? It's like experts by what criteria exactly? What's a social media communication expert? You got any documentation that that even exists as a field? And how do you know that if you have that social media expert train me, that I'm gonna be a better therapist? There's no body of data that suggests that in the least. So I'm not going down that route. That's we should, for we sure. should explain that because oh, that, yeah. well, that so is I've already one been of the sentenced, things. right? Yes. This, this isn't a threat by the college. This is what, what the situation already is. I haven't been hauled in front of their disciplinary board yet. But they've already convicted me of disgracing the profession and sentenced me to an indefinite period of re-education. And that's the second most serious punishment that they can levy against the profession. The first is to take away the license. The second is to undergo this retraining and to publicly announce the necessity for that, which they've already done in my case. And so now I have to sit down with these experts at my expense for an indefinite period of time until I'm trained properly, whatever the hell that means, by the criteria of the so-called experts and the college. And that isn't pending an investigation. That's already in place. It's such a wild request it's, too. Retraining, just even the way they phrase it, it's so bizarre, so Orwellian. Yeah, you know, yeah, well, like I said, it's your social fault, you know, media. It's the whole transcript <laughs> of our last conversation, I don't imagine they'll be that happy with this one. So, but the other reason I'm pursuing it, and to the degree that I'm able to keep my head clear during this process, because it definitely makes me angry and really made me angry over Christmas when I was spending Christmas going through the minutia of all these bloody lawsuits trying to figure out what the hell they were up to instead of, you know, taking a bit of a break and having some time with my family. And so I was very upset about that, but to the degree that I'm upset about it, I'm not doing it right, eh? because this can't be personal, can't be about me. Part of the reason that I want to pursue this and part of the reason we're pursuing an objection to what they're doing on Charter of Rights grounds in Canada is because they're interfering with my freedom of conscience and speech. And again, it isn't even the case that the reason that that's a problem is because it's about me. The reason it's a problem is because the colleges in general, like the regulatory boards of professionals, are doing this to everyone. Lawyers, physicians, teachers, massage therapists, there's all these licensed professions. And if you're, if you're a licensed profession, the government establishes a board of your peers to regulate conduct of the professionals. Now, in, in a functional time, all that happens then is that generally the people who get in trouble get in trouble with their own clients, right? With the people they've been de dealing with directly. And then the board steps in on the side of the person who's been injured by a you know, a pathologically practicing professional, and fair enough. But now it's been weaponized, and it's now it's been weaponized as a political tool too, and it's not like activists don't know that. You know, and it's so preposterous because I have 20 million people following me on social media, you know, and God only knows how many views of my videos, for example, or the interviews you and I have done. It's tens of millions. And like, the, the, what, how many people complained? 20 out of millions? And then the college didn't have to pursue those complaints. They can invest, they have to investigate them. So I don't know what they're doing now because of course they've been inundated by thousands of complaints about their own behaviors. I have no idea what they're gonna do about that. But they didn't have to investigate.
they chose to investigate. And as I said, they did that despite the fact that half the complainants claimed to be my clients and weren't. So what we have here is 13 people who complained about me hypothetically doing harm to someone they didn't know, to someone who they didn't know, anyone who knew on as a consequence of things I said on social media. And that all of them, not only were they fourth-hand claims of harm, which you know, no psychologist would ever claim that a fourth-hand account of harm constituted a valid measurement, so the bloody college is violating its own measurement standards by even pursuing this. But So not only are they based on fourth-hand information and then an outright lie, which is they were clients of mine, they're, they're also predicated on the assumption that it's okay to go after a professional for expressing political criticism. Because, like, literally half of them are... Well, I said something about Trudeau. I said something about one of his top aides. I said something about Jacinda Ardern. I said something about an Ottawa city councillor in relationship to the trucker convoy. You know, I said something about climate. Every single one of the complaints is political. And so why is that a problem? Well, see if you can figure it out for yourself. That'd be the first answer. And the second is, I have a friend in Canada, a very well-known physician, international reputation, and a reasonably decent secondary income stream. And when this all hit, I reached out to him. He's a very brave guy. He's done a lot of writing that could easily get him in trouble. I said, look, maybe I could get you and Bruce Party, this lawyer at uh, Queen's University, who's gone after the essentially the college that functions for lawyers. I said, we should do three letters, same time, saying you know that the colleges are chilling free speech in Canada with psychologists, with, with physicians, and with lawyers. And he said, he didn't have his house in order enough to dare to take on the college. And the problem with that is that I don't know anybody in Canada who's a physician that's more well-situated than him or braver. And even he was loath to do it. He'll do it eventually, but not now. And so here's the situation we're in for all you who are listening. If you go to see a professional when you have a crisis, psychologist or a physician or a lawyer, let's say, you bloody well better hope those people are telling you the truth. So here's an example. Let's say you got a 13-year-old girl and she has body dysmorphia. That's very common among 13-year-old girls, especially if they hit puberty early, because when women hit puberty, their levels of negative emotion go up. That's a very well-established clinical finding. And the reason for that, likely, is that when women hit puberty, the world becomes more dangerous to them, right? Because they're sexually vulnerable. And that's also when you get body dimorphism developed, so men get bigger than women, and so, you know, women, should be more intimidated in relationship to physical combat because they're not strong enough to prevail. So they should be a little more anxious about that. And so they're sexually vulnerable, so they should be a little more anxious about that. And then also, they should be a little more anxious because they have to take care of infants. And if you're going to take care of an infant, you should be a little more sensitive to threat because the infant is extremely vulnerable. So anyways, that kicks into in women when they hit puberty. It's very well documented. This is why women have three to five times the rates of anxiety and depression worldwide. It's because their baseline levels of negative emotion are higher. Okay, so, so now, but that also translates into something very specific for women. So anxiety and depression, shame, guilt, all those negative emotions, they make you self-conscious. And self-consciousness takes the form of bodily, bodily shame in women, much more than in men. 
So if you're a girl and you hit puberty early, so you're dealing with the complexities of all that when you're still pretty immature, and you get, and your negative emotion goes up, the probability that you're going to negatively evaluate your body is virtually 100%. There's no difference, especially in women, between feeling bad about their bodies and being high in negative emotion. It's the same thing. So I just interviewed this Chloe Cole who's detransitioning and suing her medical, so-called medical professionals who rushed her into a double mastectomy at 15. And the wounds have never properly healed, by the way. So that's her life. You know, and I basically ran her through a clinical interview. I said, hey, kiddo, you know, when you were 12 and miserable about your body, what the hell was going on? She said, well, you know, I, I, I thought more like a boy. She's a little autistic, so she's more thing-oriented than people-oriented. And so she didn't get along with girls that well. And then she was dreaming that she'd turn out like Kim Kardashian, but she turned out to have kind of a boyish figure. And then she thought, well, I'll never really be a good, you know, full woman. And so maybe I should be a boy. And she started to toy with that. And then she went to her medical professionals with this body dysmorphia. And instead of sitting her down and saying, look, kid, you hit puberty kind of early. You got a partially autistic personality style that that makes you a little more comfortable with boys than girls. And every girl there is suffers body dysmorphia at your age. So just you know, tap her cool, you know, the fact that you're embarrassed about yourself and feeling inadequate. It's like, that doesn't mean you're marked out as pathological. It certainly doesn't mean you're a boy. No one ever told her that. That's like basic information there. They just rush her along the pathway. Puberty blockers at 13, and then a double mastectomy at 50. What is causing this rush to that? Like, what? how did this happen, and how did this happen so quickly? Well, this is partly tied up with this issue of the college, so, so here's one way into it. So now, professionals are bound by law to offer gender-affirming advice. They're bound by law. Okay, so this is what this means. If you bring your 13-year-old in to be evaluated by a physician or a psychologist, who, and maybe she has high levels of neuroticism, tilting towards depression and anxiety, and then that's making itself manifest in bodily discomfort, now that's being shaped by this cultural fad that insists that if you feel uncomfortable in your body, it's because you're of the opposite gender. That's the psychological epidemic part of it. And we can talk about that in a little bit more detail. But now you're duty bound by law, if you're a professional, to say, oh, you think you're a boy? Yeah, absolutely. You absolutely, 100%, you are. What can we do to facilitate that move forward? And that all got, what would you call it? What? Pushed into the law under the guise of the elimination of conversion therapy. So, unbelievable. Now, the problem with that is, you see, if you're a therapist or a physician, you don't affirm someone's identity. That's not your job. And your job is not to deny their identity either. Your job is to help them explore their identity and hopefully to develop it. And so someone comes to you, maybe they have body dysmorphia. And so maybe they're anorexic, that's a form of body dysmorphia. And so the first thing you do, if you have any sense, is you note that that's stemming out of an underlying, more global proclivity to suffer from depression and anxiety. So that's the big elephant in the room. 
expression of anxiety. So if the trans activist types say, well, the body dysmorphic types are more likely to have suicidal thoughts, it's not because they have body dysmorphia, it's because they're prone to depression and anxiety, and depressed and anxious people are more likely to have suicidal thoughts. And maybe body dysmorphia adds a bit to that, but nobody really knows. Probably adds some. But the fundamental issue is one of depression and anxiety. So now you're suffering from you know, unspecified self-consciousness, and the culture twists around to offer you a narrative. And the narrative is, oh, well, you're in the wrong body. And then that carrot is, and this is part of it, it's extraordinarily pathological. A lot of these kids who are suffering from this alienation are unpopular. And so, and now they're being enticed. It's like, yeah, well, you're not unpopular. You're interestingly special. So if you just take this carrot, you're the opposite sex. All of a sudden, you're not a victim, you're a brave, what would you call it? You're a brave seeker after your redemptive identity. And now you can be elevated, and you can be treated specially. And my God, you know, if you're an unpopular teenager, how could anything be possibly more attractive than that? And then you also think, well, why are teenagers gullible in that way, you know? Why do they go along with the crowd? And the answer to that is, that's what you're supposed to do when you're a teenager. That's your job, right? Because first of all, you're with your parents and you're not yet a fully fledged individual. So what you have to do is you have to become part of the group. And if you're not part of the group, well, maybe you're a stellar, you know, creative genius and you're exceptional in that matter, but more likely you're just a loser who couldn't fit in. And that sucks, that's for sure. So your job when you're a teenager is to fit in, as every teenager knows. You know, and maybe not just to fit in, but, you know, to fit in in a positive way that elevates the community. But let it, we could just settle for fitting in. And so teenagers are wired to go along with the crowd. And then if the crowd is offering something pathological, that happens all the time. You get a psychological epidemic. And I knew that. I told you, I, I told the Senate this in 2017. And why did I know? Well, I knew the literature. We've tracked psychological epidemics going back 300 years. 300 years. Here's some of them. Multiple personality disorder. It cycles in society. Disappears, then there's one case, then it spreads like mad. Then there's multiple personality disorder everywhere. Teenage girls mostly. Then people get skeptical about it, and it dies. And maybe it disappears for a whole generation or two. Then a case pops up. It does this. That's happened for 300 years. Um, cutting was a psychological epidemic. Bulimia was a psychological epidemic. Anorexia was a psychological epidemic. The satanic daycare ritual abuse accusations that came out in the 1980s, that was a psychological epidemic. And the, the rule basically is, is that if you, if you confuse people about a fundamental element of their identity, then those who are already so confused they're barely hanging on are gonna fall prey to that and all hell's gonna break loose. And that's exactly what's happened in the you know, in the trans, in the trans situation. But the it's difference between this one as opposed to the other ones like multiple personality disorder is that this one is being reinforced culturally. Like you, you are rewarded. Yeah, well the multiple personality disorder, that happened there too because you'd get a lot of attention from media, especially the early, the people who, who are the first, who display the first symptoms of multiple personality disorder, you know get a psychologist or a psychiatrist or an alienist if you go back far enough 
who reports this fascinating case of multiple personality. And, you know, there are people who are dissociative. So they kind of have multiple personalities. They're united by memory. They're usually creative people because creative people have multiple personalities. That's what makes them creative. They're not the same from day to day. You could even say they have fluid identities. You know, and so the claims of the gender types that some people have fluid identities, it's like, yeah, creative people do. They're the purple-haired types with like nose rings and tattoos. That's all part of trade openness. You combine that with high neuroticism, negative emotion, then you get people who are fluid in their identity who are also prone to depression and anxiety. So that's, that's also crystal clear. And so, well, so, Look, if you're an outsider, do you want to be a dull and contemptible outsider? Or do you want to be an interesting and compelling and nouveau, exciting outsider? Well, if you're a teenage girl and you've been unpopular, that's brutal, because you know, you get tied up with those mean girls. Yeah. They shun you and exclude you. It's absolutely brutal. You know, you're just living a peripheral existence. You've got no friends. Everyone's contemptuous of you. You know, and maybe that's partly because you have some, something that marks you out from the norm, like a tilt towards autism, because a lot of the people, it was just released with Tavistock staff. You know, the Tavistock closed down in the UK. That was the big gender surgery performing institute in the UK. How, how was that closed, closed down? down? What happened? Government closed it down. So yeah, the because they knew that, they, they figured out in the UK that, wow, the rates of transgender transformation requests were skyrocketing. And even the people at the clinic knew that they were rushing people along the transformation pipeline way faster than they should have without proper clinical evaluation. There's a thousand lawsuits out against the Tavistock in the UK now. A thousand. Uh, yeah, out of, I think, 30,000 uh, transition processes. So what is the difference between the way the UK is processing this versus the way we are? Well, we're still where the UK was three or four years ago. We haven't woken up to the fact that you know, all hell's going to break loose on this front with people like Chloe Cole, you know, launching, launching lawsuits. That's the only thing that's ever going to stop this. Lawsuits. Lawsuits, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Or jail sentences. So, like, it's absolutely appalling. This is part of the reason that I've also part of the reason that I felt like I've been at war for like six months. It's, it's so crazy that much. this, what you're saying here, although it's backed by the literature, it's it's obvious you have an expertise in this area, that this is, this is labeled as transphobic. Yeah, this is yeah. a transphobic Well, it's even worse than that, you know, because the data, and this was known, let's say, 10 years ago before this all became an issue, Ken Zucker in, in Toronto, he was the world's leading authority on transgenderism. You know, he divided it into two parts. There's the autogynophilic types. Those are the guys who get sexual kicks from dressing up in women's clothing and then go dr do drag queen story hour. Say, well, we're just, you know, pristine and pure. It's like, no, you're not. You're getting a sexual kick from dressing up in women's clothing. And let's not bloody well forget it. And you can't even say that now, but every clinician worth his salt knew that for decades. And then there's another subpopulation. And those are usually gender non-conforming kids. And you know, like a conservative skeptic might say there's no such thing. It's like, no, there, there is. So your typical gender non-conforming kid would be, this would be the perfect target for this, would be feminine boy or a masculine girl who's high in trade openness, so has kind of a mutable identity, who's also high in neuroticism. And there's lots of kids like that. And so they don't fit in that well with their peer group. You know, they're tomboy girls or feminine boys. And then if you track 
A lot of them, some of them develop body dysmorphia. They're not very happy with themselves at puberty because they don't fit in. But Zucker showed very clearly, he ran the transgender treatment clinic at CAMH in Toronto for decades, and he was one of the world's leading authorities in terms of publication. I think he was the editor of the lead journal for years. They just took him out in Canada, fired him and disgraced him, and he battled on the lawsuit front for like 10 years and was eventually vindicated, but he didn't have a political bone in his body. He was a clinician through and through, you know. He wasn't playing political games, documenting autogynophilia. That was just clinical reality. Now it's, it's become verboten to even suggest such a thing. Oh, there's nothing sexual about this. It's like, yeah, right. You're dressing up in lingerie before your mirror at home, tucking your dick between your legs, imagining you have a vagina for a sexual kick. Oh, there's nothing sexual about that. Yeah, right. Bloody absolute liars. Now, then you have the kids who don't fit in on the gender front. That's a different pathway. But with them, if you leave them alone, so do no harm, leave them alone. 90% of them accept their body, their sex, by age 18 or 19. And 80% of them are gay. So what that also means is, and the gay community is going to wake up to this sooner or later, is that most of the kids being sterilized and mutilated are gay. 80% of them. So I don't see how the LGBT alliance is going to hold up under that sort of reality. So, yeah, that's for sure, man. What a crazy yeah, And here, situation. here, let's add something equally ugly to it. Since we haven't gone far enough yet. So here, we'll do a little bit of arithmetic. So, a while back, Disney executive mentioned on video. This is when Florida went after Disney. It's all when this was happening. She came out and said, I think she was head of domestic programming for Disney. She said, well, I have two children, five and seven. One is trans and the other is pansexual. And I just thought mathematically right away, it's like the chance you have a trans kid is one in 3,000. That's not a very high chance. And let's say the chance that you have pansexual kid is the same, whatever pansexual means. I don't even know how to calculate those odds, but whatever that is, is rarer than trans because no one ever even heard about it until five years ago. So the joint probability that you have a trans kid and a pansexual kid is one in nine million. The odds that you're a pathological narcissist sacrificing your own children to the glorification of your compassion is 8,999,999 to one. So like, do you have a trans kid and a pansexual kid? Or are you a devouring mother? Well, you can look at the odds and decide for yourself. Jesus. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no kidding. Look man, Freud was no dummy. When he pointed to the fact that the devouring mother was one of the major impediments to proper human development, he knew that, mm. looking deep into the darkest families and seeing this proclivity of the overprotective mother to destroy the developing integrity of the child, to keep the child infantile, to cling to that relationship instead of developing life for herself and letting the child go flourish. That's Hansel and Gretel, right? Mm. You're lost in the woods. Why? Well, your family's broken up. You have an evil stepmother. So now you're lost in the woods. What's your abuse rate if you have a step-parent? 100 times normal. So you're lost in the woods. Well, what happens? Well, you come across a gingerbread house. Well, that's pretty damn convenient. You need a house. It's a little, it's more than you could even hope for. It's not just a house. 
It's a house made out of candy. Well, what's inside a house made out of candy? A witch who wants to fatten you up and eat you. And that's the devouring mother. You know, and that's an old fairy tale. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and so, you know, we could, we could dwell on that for a minute too. One of the things we won't honestly discuss in our society, one of many, is the fundamental nature of female political psychopathology. You know, and there's male political psychopathology, obviously. That's what the feminists complain about all the time when they talk about the oppressive patriarchy, you know, toxic masculinity. There's no shortage of toxic masculinity. So is there any toxic femininity? Well, not if the feminine is just the, you know, oppressed virgin goddess whose nature, but how about we don't live in that fantasy world? And we know, yeah, there's female political pathology, the tendency to infantilize everyone and the tendency to assume that everyone who doesn't go along with the infantilization is properly characterized as a predator. And so, you know, you wonder why are the universities turning into extended daycares? Well, a lot of the, a lot of the reason for that is that well, women who don't have anything better to do are turning the university students into the infants they never had. So, yeah, Jesus. I don't know when we'll be able to be mature enough to have that conversation. 20 years from now. What is a path to bring this back to some sort of uh, rational, logical way of discussing okay. these problems? So I, I tweeted out, I don't know if you saw this, that I was going to make an announcement on your show today. And so I, I set up an international consortium based in London. I can't tell you all the details yet, but we're, we're, we're trying to put together something like an alternative vision of the future, say an alternative to that kind of apocalyptic narrative that's being put forward at least implicitly by organizations like the WEF, you know, and that's the virginal planet, rapacious, tyrant, you know, all-devouring consumer religion. And it's more like something like, well, we want to ask people six key questions. Okay, so how do we get energy and resources? at the lowest possible cost, as rapidly as possible to the largest number of people around the world? That's one question. And so there's a presumption in the question, and here's one of the presumptions. You don't get to save the planet by making energy prices so expensive that no one poor can afford them. That's off the table. So if you want to develop alternative energy sources, no problem. You know, because, hey man, the more energy sources we have, the better. But you don't get to impose your utopian vision in the service of your narcissism on the poor. We're going to try to make the poor rich, kind of try to alleviate absolute poverty. Pro-human view on environmental stewardship front. That's the next question. What are the major problems that are confronting us? How do we take a sophisticated, multi-dimensional view of that? How do we prioritize our attempts to establish our states and our international relationships properly so that we prioritize human well-being you know, in harmony with nature to the degree that's possible, but human-focused and not predicated on the idea that there are too many goddamn mouths on the planet to feed and that you're evil if you just think about having children. So then on the governance front, this is where it gets kind of more left-wing, I would say, is none of the people involved in this consortium so far are very thrilled with global corporate fascist government media and, uh, and, co and uh, corporation collusion. You know, and we're seeing this at the high end. It's like a Tower of Babel, is that the, the powerful players in the world are increasingly collaborating to impose a top-down vision of the future on everyone. 
And that's a future that's predicated on a zero growth model. And the idea that, well, we'd need five planets really to support everyone at the current standard of living that obtains in the West. So the best pathway forward is to deny loans by the World Bank to developing countries so they can't develop, you know, energy sources, which all that'll mean is they're going to burn wood and coal, obviously. So, so that's the third question is, you know, how do we arrange systems of governance to stop the march of something like pathological gigantism? This is why I like people like Russell Brand and also you to some degree politically, you know, because you guys are very, what would you say, sensitive to the danger of that kind of corrupt collusion, that regulatory capture that occurs when corporate entities, media entities, and governmental entities are all in bed together, like the FDA and the CDC and, and so forth and so on without end. So that's, that's the third question. The fourth question is, what do we put forward as a vision on the family policy front to facilitate the, what would you call it, the encouragement and the maintenance of long-term monogamous couples who are child-centered and to make increasing the birth rate part of that policy, to put policies in place that would support long-term stable monogamous families, two-parent families, and child-centered. You know, because in the West, because we're very immature, we think that the purpose of a marriage is the happiness of the people who are involved in the marriage, the husband and the wife. And that's just not the purpose of marriage at all. The purpose is long-term facilitation of their psychological and spiritual development and the establishment of an environment that's beneficial to children. That's a responsible way of thinking about it. And so we need to have a serious conversation about what that means. And, you know, it's tricky because, like, I think the ideal has to be long-term committed monogamous heterosexual relationships. And I had a big conversation with this, about this with Dave Rubin. You know, Rubin's gay and he's married and him and his partner now have two infants and we talked through how that was. It's a very hard thing for them to arrange, obviously. Why? Well, they're both male. So that poses a severe problem on the reproductive front, right? And so they manage that. They have two infants, but it's very complex and it isn't, it's obviously not a solution to the problem of relationship and reproduction that's duplicatable across long, large numbers of people. It just takes too many resources. Now, I do think we have to have an ideal at the center of every concept. But the ideal can't be too rigid, you know, because people, people aren't perfect. You know, in my own family, there's lots of people who are divorced, lots of people, lots of people's families, there are people who are gay, you know, there are lots of people in unhappy marriages. Nobody attains the ideal. So the ideal has to be surrounded by a fringe of tolerance, but that doesn't mean you sacrifice the ideal. And the ideal has to be well, we know there's a literature on fatherlessness. You know, it's a bloody catastrophe, fatherlessness, for obvious reasons. You know, human children are complicated. I think you can, maybe if you struggle madly as a single parent, you can do a decent job, and lots of single parents do, but you're asking a lot, you know, for a woman to work 50 hours a week and then spend another 40 hours with her kids and to do both of those optimally with no help. You know, and we know perfectly well that when women get divorced, especially if they have kids, they tend to fall down the economic hierarchy. So it's very difficult. So that's another one of the policies. And another question, we're trying to make these into questions rather than, you know, we have the answer. The other question is, well, it's pretty clear that we have to live inside a story. And one story is power rules everything. That's not a very good story. 
it's a very pathological story. It's more like a confession, too, if that's the story you insist upon. It's like, so you think power governs everything, do you? Okay, I know what you're like. So that's what you truly believe. See, I believe the spirit of voluntary play governs everything, not the spirit of power. It's like voluntary association. That's what we're doing in this conversation. You know, we're playing towards an end and we're doing it voluntarily and we're taking everybody along for the ride. No one's forced to do it. So that's the other thing, no compulsion here. It's gotta be invitational. And so we're trying to work out what the story has to be. And on that front, I just finished a seminar in Miami and it, first eight parts of it were released on the Daily Wire three months ago, Exodus seminar. We walked through the story of Exodus. Exodus means exhodos, means the way forward. So it's the archetypal narrative of progression from tyranny and chaos into the future. That's what the story is. And we, uh, we did half of it, released it on the Daily Wire, eight episodes, two hours long. And we just recorded the last eight sessions two weeks ago, and that was an absolute blast. I had really stellar people participating. Man, I learned so much. I learned so much. It's gonna take me like two years to digest it. But uh, the Daily Wire is gonna release it all on YouTube for free starting in two months, one episode a week for 16 weeks, and then we're gonna keep it on YouTube and The Daily Wire for free for four months. And so, and it it lays out a vision of uh, of appropriate governance as an al that's an alternative to tyranny and to chaos. So in, in the Exodus story, so here here's, this is, this is very germane to the notion of what might constitute a proper story. So the question that you put forward in your life is something like, what spirit should guide you as you move ahead? And you might say, well, I don't need a spirit to guide me. It's like, yeah, you don't have that option. Some spirit guides you. Might be your stomach. Might be, might be a worshiper of the god Priapus, right? He's the god of giant erections. That's what happens if your whole identity is staked on your sexuality. It's like some spirit is gonna guide you. That's life. The question is, what is the highest spirit that could guide you? So in the Exodus story, the proposition of the story is the highest spirit that could guide you is the spirit that objects to tyranny and that calls the enslaved to freedom. That's the representation of God in Exodus. So that's what God is in the Exodus story. Now that's not all that God is in the biblical stories. That's God in the Exodus story. And so that is the God that if you abide by that God, then you believe that tyranny is implicitly wrong, even if you tyrannize yourself, and that there's something implicitly virtuous about striving for freedom, especially if you're enslaved. So anyways, that's the voice that speaks to Moses. And the voice tells Moses to tell the Pharaoh, the tyrant, to let his people go. That's that famous line, let my people go. But the line is actually, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Okay, so anyways, God through Moses calls the Israelites out of tyranny and he punishes the tyrant. So if you believe that fate punishes tyrants, you're already immersed in the Exodus story to some degree. If you believe that tyranny is implicitly wrong, of course most Americans believe that. Okay, so now the Israelites leave the tyranny. You think, hey man, great, freedom. Because now you're out of the tyranny. That is how life works. This is why people won't drop their tyrannical presuppositions. Because you go out of the tyranny, into the desert, not to the promised land. Desert first. <laughs> <laughs>
And where's what's the desert? Everyone's lost. No one knows which way to go. Everyone fights. Everyone turns to the worship of false idols. Everyone wants the tyrant to reassert himself. That's the situation we're in, in the aftermath of the death of God in the West. And so, so that's really useful to know because one of the things you might want to know in your life is why do people cling to their own tyrannical presuppositions? And the answer is, well, at least they're orienting structures, pathological as they might be. If you drop them, you're not redeemed, you're just lost. And the idea that being lost is freedom, that's a preposterous idea. No one lost is free. They're just enveloped in chaos. Okay, so what happens in that? Exodus story is now the Israelites are out in the desert wandering around for like generations and uh, they get all fractious and fight and bitch and complain and start worshiping false idols and um, they're scrapping with each other and that's because they have the habits of slaves they don't know how to govern themselves and so they ask Moses to sit as a judge and so he does for, stories very unclear about this but for a long time years and years morning dawn till midnight he's judging the israelites like mad adjudicating their squabbles and uh imagine what he's doing eh? if you had to make peace between a thousand people who were squabbling with their you know their wife or their or their friends or their enemies you have to render judgment on that you know and for judgment to work the people who are judged have to see the judgment as just because otherwise you have to impose it by force right so if i hear you arguing with someone and i try to mediate i have to come up with a solution that you both accept that means i have to extract out of that chaos some principle of order imagine you do that a thousand times or five thousand times so now you start to understand the nature of the principles of order okay so now two things happen jethro who's moses father-in-law comes along he's a Midianite a foreigner he says you got to stop doing this you can't sit as judge on the Israelites there are two reasons they need the responsibility and you shouldn't turn yourself into another Pharaoh so if you take all the responsibility onto yourself you become a tyrant and the Israelites stay slaves so he says to Jethro this is a signal moment in the development of Western culture by the way he says, you take the Israelites, you divide them into groups of 10, and you have each of the 10 elect an elder. And then you take the groups of elders, and you have them elect a meta-elder, and you do that all the way up to 10,000s. And then you have the judgments that are necessary rendered at the lowest level of the hierarchy possible. So, you know, if I'm arguing with you, first we go to our elder, and then if the elder can't figure it out, he gets the elders together, and maybe they render judgment. If they can, it goes to the council of elder elders and all the way up. And if it isn't mediated by the time you have the groupings of 10,000, then Moses gets to weigh in. And that's called subsidiarity. And the idea is you have to produce a hierarchy of responsibility, distributed responsibility, as an antithesis to tyranny and to the desert. And that's the model for good governance. And that's symbolically equivalent to Mount Sinai. And it's also the model of the Ark of the Covenant and the and the tabernacle. So Jonathan Pajot did a lo lovely job of explaining that in this. And so, and so part of the model that we're trying to put forward in this group that I'm describing is based on this principle of subsidiarity and the idea that we want to 
encourage everyone to take as much responsibility as possible at the most local level possible, right? So take responsibility for yourself until you're good enough at that so you can take responsibility maybe for a wife and then if you're good enough at that maybe you could extend that to some kids and then maybe you can serve your local community and then maybe you can serve your state and maybe if you really get good at it you could serve your nation right but you're taking the responsibility and here's the basic rule all the responsibility you abdicate will be taken up by tyrants that's the that's the cardinal rule of social organization and so we're trying to build out this story that's based on the deepest elements of Western tradition. That's an, an antidote to the, well, to the, to the false claim that it's only power that rules. Because it's not, it's not right. And there is a model of, of proper governance in there, this idea of a hierarchical structure of responsibility. It's the proper computational structure. It's not top-down tyranny with fractionated individuals. And it's not utter chaos. It's ordered freedom. And that's what God tells Moses to tell the Pharaoh when he says, let my people go. Let my people go, no tyranny, so that they may celebrate me in the desert. It's ordered freedom. And it's the ordered freedom that comes along with being oriented towards the highest possible good. And so we're trying to work all that out now. We're going to have a conference in London, October 31st, November 1st, and November 2nd. We're going to bring about 2,000 people together. That's an invited list. We want to bring in people who are cultural figures and political figures, business figures, and uh, invite them to this discussion. And But we want to make that completely public, and we want to open up the organization to broad membership, as broad as possible. And then, you know, if, if it's a success, then we'll open up the conferences as the years progress to larger and larger numbers of people. But we can't, you know, we don't have the expertise or the wherewithal manage that first off but we've got the venue already set up in london i've got all sorts of people on board in australia and all through europe and through the uk and all through the united states south america all sorts of people are interested in participating and so we want to help put forward a vision that's enticing and inviting it's like imagine you could have the world you wanted you know none of this Malthusian limits to growth nonsense. Get our act together. Everyone can have it, can have enough, and maybe more than enough. There'll be enough educational opportunity for everyone. No one will be scrabbling away in the dirt, burning dung, poisoning themselves. Enough food for everyone. There's also an idea in Exodus, and this is a very good idea. And if people organize themselves properly, so they're oriented on a transcendent axis and they're oriented towards their fellow man. So, you serve what's highest and you also abide by the principle of reciprocity in relationship to other people. If we organize ourselves in that manner, there's no limit to the abundance the natural world can produce. That's the actual generator of genuine wealth, sustainable wealth, you know, that balances order and chaos properly, that balances nature and culture properly. So the core idea is something like, you get the hierarchy of social organization right, it generates unlimited wealth. And we've already seen that to a large degree, you know, we've lifted more people out of poverty in the last 15 years than really, it's unparalleled. You know, seven out of eight billion people now have, either have the minimum they need or something exceeding them. 
And instead of, you know, starving to death by the billions, which is what everybody who was on the Malthusian side predicted back in the 1960s. So, been working on this for a long time. We've got a good group of core people who seem to be, you know, reliable, not motivated, by something approaching narcissistic egotism, and everybody's sworn to try to make this as decentralized as possible on the principle that the more responsibility you can offload to people, the better everything will work. That's a fundamentally conservative principle, like a small c conservative principle, right? So you need a hierarchy of responsibility and you offload responsibility to the local where possible. I think that's it's a good principle. Let's hold that thought because yep. I gotta pee. Um, and I wanna I wanna explore that. Yep. 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 So, so, back so, to this so, uh, thing that you're doing. First of all, what are you calling this? You I can't tell you that. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're, so you're trying to, one of the things you were saying is you're trying to generate a story. Yeah, we're trying to invite everybody to the table. And we're trying to get the right story. And we'll know it's the right story because people will say voluntarily, yeah, I can really go for that. What do you mean by story when you're saying the right story? Well, a vision. Well, I would say it's something, if you want to think about it archetypally, it's something like a vision of the promised land. A structure. So, yeah, yeah, well, you, you have to... Okay, we could talk about that technically. A story is a description of a hierarchy... Sorry. A story is a description of a hierarchy of attentional prioritization. So, so what do I mean by that? There's an infinite number of things to look at in the world. So perception seems technically impossible because you just drown in the complexity. That's what happens in a psychedelic trip. You drown in the complexity. It's real, that complexity. Now, usually that's shielded from you. It's veiled from you. Like God is veiled from you. It's the same thing. And so it's veiled by the fact that you regard some things as more important than others. And you do that implicitly. So, for example, right now, you're devoting most of your cognitive and perceptual resources to my face and to what I'm saying. Right now, there's a lot of things you can be looking at in this room or thinking about, right? There's an infinite number of things, but you're not. You're weighting some things more heavily. Now, why? Well, why are we having this conversation? Well, I could ask you, why are we having this conversation? Because I'm curious. I okay. want to know how you think. Okay. I want to know what, what your plans are. What goal do you think your curiosity serves? Uh, better understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, okay. Why do you think other people are interested in that? Because they're going to watch this. Why do you think people are interested in that? Because what you're saying makes sense. And it, it, we also recognize that there is, there's a real flaw in um, the way our society is constructed. And there's a real genuine threat in allowing these power structures to sort of maintain this narrative and create this narrative that's based upon them gaining control over resources, our economics, our energy, and socially what we okay. do and what we don't do. Okay, so now that serves you, them. Okay, so do you see that partially what you're involved in insofar as you're doing it right is something like, what would you say, a cautionary tale about the possibility of tyranny? Yes. Okay, so you can see how that ties into yeah, an archetypal story, certain. right? And I think that's the big threat. Now, that's what people are terrified of okay. when they see Klaus Schwab standing there with a Darth Vader yeah. outfit telling people that they're going to eat bugs. Okay, and so, and you're using the technology of free communication as an antidote to that. Yes. Okay, so then I would say archetypally what you're doing is you're doing something like serving the divine word that makes habitable order out of chaos as an antidote to tyranny. 
That's a story. It's a deep story. And if you weren't acting out a deep story, you wouldn't have tens of millions of people listening to it. The fact that that's like, it's like J.K. Rowling. It's like, why is she so popular? Well, she told an archetypal story, masterfully. It has a religious substructure. It just got people, you know, like hundreds of millions of people and produced billions of dollars. You have to see the world through a story. You act out a story. And the, the reason we like stories is because it's actually pretty hard to see the world and it's really useful to see the world the way other people see it, just in case they know something you don't. And so we're telling each other stories all the time. We're acting out stories. A description of the pattern we're acting out, that is a story. You know, and when you go to a movie, maybe you see the hero on the screen, you know, it's James Bond. And that's, well, that's the same, it's the same narrative in some sense. It's, you know, it's a bit more stereotyped, but Bond is, you know, this sophisticated, aggressive guy who's got his aggression under control, who's fighting the Hydra. And it's not the Hydra in James Bond. I don't remember the name of the underground organization there, but it's a Hydra for the Marvel heroes. Mm -hmm. The Hydra is an amalgam of tyranny and chaos. Right? It's a hydra with a head of snakes. Paralyzes you when you look at it. It's an archetypal narrative. And you and the, the fundamental question of life is what is the proper orienting narrative? That's the same question as what God do you worship? It's the reason I entitled my next book, We Who Wrestle with God, because you're stuck with that no matter what. You're wrestling with one God or another all the time. God's an animating spirit. That's one way of thinking about it. It's more than that, but that's one way of thinking about it. And so I constantly look to these old stories, these archetypal stories, you know, as a student of Jung, let's say, to find out what the proper orienting pathway is. And that's embedded in tradition. You know, the stories that have lasted. Richard Dawkins would have got to this conclusion if he would have pursued his thought far enough. Because an archetype is a, is a stable meme, propagates across time. And there's some memes, some stories, let's say, that stabilize you as an individual. They, they re restrict your anxiety. They provide you with hope. They make you productive and generous. And when they're extended, they produce a structure that unites, that unites people and produces productive peace. You know, and it's not by fluke, for example, that the America itself is founded in no small part on the motivational force of something like the Exodus narrative. That was certainly the case for the civil rights movement. It has to be that way because Exodus is an archetypal story about the establishment of proper order as an alternative to the tyrant and the desert. So everyone is always doing that in their life, whether they know it or not. You know, and you do it extremely well, if you don't mind the insult of a compliment. And I think the reason for that is that for whatever reason, you are acutely aware of your own ignorance and always trying to rectify it. And I would say that's a reflection of a practice of humility. You know, I know you're a competent guy and you're no pushover and so calling you humble is kind of a weird thing to do, but one of the things that I've been very pleased about constantly when talking to you is it's, just, it's a conversation, man. You know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make things clear. We're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. We're trying to say what we think. We're trying to jointly make each other wiser. You know, hopefully, to the degree we were able to manage it, and we're inviting people along for the ride. And they seem pretty happy about that. And that's partly because people aren't just oriented by power. You know, there's all these truckers out there who are listening to this podcast while they're driving their rigs across the country. You know, what are they trying to do? 
They're trying to get their acts together. They're trying to understand, you know, they're trying to take their proper position in the social world. And that's a fundamentally compelling, it's not a drive, it's an orienting and integrating spirit. It's the same as the spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's exactly the same thing. It's the same thing. So one of the things I learned about the biblical narrative, this is so cool. This is what the next book's about. So imagine there's two possible states. One of disunity and, and chaos. You're going in every direction at the same time. And one of relative unity. Now the unity can turn into tyranny. And uh, the multiplicity can turn into chaos. Those are the two dangers. But imagine there's a proper unity that stops you from being anxious. Anxious anxiety is a marker of it internal disunity of narrative. And I already talked about that with this Carl Friston, for example. He's the world's most cited neuroscientist. I asked him, I asked him if perceptions were micro-narratives, and he said yes, and that's quite something. That isn't how we've looked at the world for the last 3,000 years. In any case, to the degree that you're not anxious, something is uniting all the directions you could take. Okay. Now, to the degree that you're not at odds with everyone else, you know, in the chaotic state of nature where everyone's at everyone's throat, it's because there's a, a mode of perception and action that unites you socially. So you can be united psychologically, and you're not a house that's built on sand, and you can be united socially. Imagine there's a spirit that is that that characterizes that unity. So the biblical corpus is an attempt to portray that spirit and it does it using a technique called metonymy so metaphor is something being something else this is like that or this is that it's a way of taking what you know to explain what you don't know but metonymy is a technique where you take one story that seems to have one moral and you juxtapose it with another and maybe do that with a sequence of stories and then there's an implication that there's a meta story that emerges across all the ordered stories. And that's what the biblical corpus is, because no one wrote it, not in any real sense. And the processes by which it aggregated are mysterious. They extend over thousands and thousands of years. But here's what the, story, the book is. It's a library, not a book. Here's what the library is. There's a proclivity towards monotheistic unity that unites us psychologically and socially. And it emerges out of a plurality of potential gods. It emerges from the bottom up. Now, you could argue that it descends from the top down too, but I'm not gonna get into that at the moment. The question emerges, how do you understand that unifying, animating spirit? And the answer is, well, it's beyond our comprehension and we can more or less approach it with a story. So here, here's some examples. So in, in uh, the story of Adam and Eve, God is the spirit that you walk with when you're unself-conscious in a properly tended garden. You might say, well, do you believe in that? It's like, well, do you have a garden? Most people want a garden. They want a house. They want a little fenced-off plot. They want to go be able to go back there and relax and recreate, right, unself-consciously. Okay, so whatever's happening when you're there, that's what that is. That's that walking unself-consciously with the spirit of the paradisal garden. So that's one picture of God. And then in the story of Cain and Abel, you have another picture, which is God is the spirit that punishes you 
if you make poor sacrifices. So what does that mean? It's like, are you giving it your all or not? Are you playing both sides of the both sides of the fence? Are you just, you know, chipping in when you have to and trying to go along for a free ride? And that's what happens with Cain. He gets all bitter about it because his sacrifices are rejected. So God is the spirit that rejects false sacrifices. And what happens to Cain? He gets bitter and then murderous and then his descendants become genocidal. That's the Cain and Abel story in like two paragraphs. So then you have the story of Noah. So Noah, in Noah, God is the spirit that calls the wise of his time, because Noah is portrayed as someone wise in his generations, right? So for his time and place, he's a wise man. He has the sense that the storms are coming and it's time to batten down the damn hatches. And so like in your own life, maybe your eyes are open to some degree and you think a storm is coming, you have an intuition that a storm is coming, is do you prepare or do you ignore that? Because those are your options. Do you prepare, then you're manifesting faith in that spirit. So that's the spirit in Noah, in the Tower of Babel. You have God as the spirit that punishes the technological pretensions of mankind. So men get together to build a tower that stretches to the heavens. That's the Tower of Babel. And they want to do that to replace the transcendence. They want to replace the mystery of being with their own presumptions. And what happens is no one can talk to each other anymore. That's the state we're in right now. That's why Matt Walsh can make a movie that's entitled, What is a Woman? Can't even agree on that. That's the Tower of Babel. And so then you have the story of Abraham. And, and God is presented in that story as the spirit that calls the overprotected and, and privileged, that's Abraham, to the adventure, to the catastrophic adventure of their life. Because that's what happens to Abraham. You know, he's 83, he lives in his father's tent, eats peeled grapes, he doesn't have to do anything. And this voice makes itself manifest within him and says, get the hell up off your comfortable bed, get out there in the world, suffer your adventure. And you know, Abraham's life is just, he leaves. And it's not like it's, it's no promised land for him. It's like starvation and tyranny and war. And the Egyptian rulers conspire to steal his wife. And you know, it's brutal life, but it's life, it's adventure. And so then you think, well, all of this is an attempt to characterize Yahweh. And this is the, the Jewish God with whom the Jews have a relationship. All of these stories are an attempt to characterize that. So you can say, well, what is the spirit that you walk with unselfconsciously in the well-tended garden and the spirit that calls you to adventure and the spirit that punishes tyranny? That'd be the Exodus story. What do they have in common? That's Yahweh, whatever that is. And so then there's an attempt to characterize the nature of that spirit. And then there's a twist on that in the New Testament, which is an amazing twist. It's an amazing twist because the conclusion is that the spirit of Yahweh, portrayed in all these different ways, is the same spirit that calls people to voluntarily bear the catastrophe of their life. And that that's the union of God and man. That's the idea. So it's a hypothesis. It's like, well, is, is that the same God? So imagine that, you know, you're confronting your horizon of possibility and tragedy as bravely and honestly as you can. 
people. That's the spirit of Yahweh making itself manifest within you. And if you do that properly, then you can bear up under that load. So that's a way better story than power. So, and it looks to me like he's looking at it psychologically, trying to strip it to the degree that it's possible of its religious overtones. You can't strip it because, you know, there, there's an open question. Just imagine that there's a pattern of existence that, you know, quells your anxiety and gives you hope and unites people. Well, then you have an open question. Is, well, how much does that reflect the structure of being itself? There's a Greek idea, the logos that's intrinsic in the world, that there's an order in the world, right, that we can discover, and that manifest, makes itself manifest from the bottom up. And that's the logos of the world, the logic of the world. And it's certainly possible that the logic of the world as expressed in human existence is the same as this spirit of Yahweh that's transmuted in the New Testament into the Logos. And, you know, the what happened, I did a lecture about this at Ephesus in Turkey, of was fun, which was where the Logos was discussed 3,000 years ago, the Greek Logos. So what you have in Western culture is you have this Greek idea that there's an intrinsic order in the universe, bottom-up sort of, and then the Christians come along and say, well, there's also an intrinsic order in the psychological realm. And then Western culture is the juxtaposition of those two, the claim that those are the same thing. And so that would be the same claim as if you if you're honestly, if you honestly and truthfully confront the tragic limitations of your life, you'll discover the truth of the implicit order, and that will redeem you. And that's the fundamental claim of science, for example. So even science, insofar as it's a practice, is embedded in this tradition. So, well, it's a way better story. It's the greatest story ever told, man. And this idea that you're putting together, how, did, how do you go about structuring something like this? And how do you go about getting people to agree upon the parameters and how it, it should be implemented? Like, yeah. Well, it, it you seems like kind a of figure massive out, undertaking. You figure it out as you go. Well, I'll tell you what's happened. Okay. okay. Just because some of it's already happened. So I was traveling through Eastern Europe last year to all these countries that had been communist not that long ago. And I was fortunate because I was meeting like 30 to 50 people in each country. I had a team of people who were setting up meetings for me of cultural and political leaders in each country. So I'd have dinner with them or an event, you know, and talk to everybody and I was listening to what their concerns were. And throughout Eastern Europe, it was the same concern. And the concern was, what the hell are you guys toying with in the West? You know, this, this woke, neo-Marxism. They're terrified of that in Eastern Europe because you know, it was just 1989, right, not that long right. ago. They said, I don't know what you guys are doing. Don't you know where that goes? Very pro-American, by the way, all through Eastern Europe. Unbelievably pro-American. And everybody that I met said, like, we're really afraid of what's happening in the West. Can I pause you there for a second? When you say pro-American, what do you mean by that? Like, what, what, what about They think America? the fundamental ethos of the, of the U.S. is... Reliable. What, what is that fundamental ethos, you think? I think it's the logos, fundamentally. But, you know, if you differentiated that, one of the things that's really quite amazing about the U.S. 
And I think it's, it's unique, really, is that your society is fundamentally not envious. Now, there's plenty of envy in it, because that's hard to eradicate. But one thing about you Americans is you're actually capable of admiring success, and, and you're capable of trying to replicate it for yourselves and your children, and you actually celebrate that. Well, we think it's possible, but there's not a caste system That's a here. faith. Yes. It's a faith. You yes. believe that that's... Not only do you believe that that's possible, you believe that it's appropriate. Yes. And that's the American dream. And you know? it's celebrated. And, and celebrated. And that's no different than worshipped, fundamentally, like that. The difference between those words is like systematic and so that trivial. that is what is attractive yeah well partly too because you remember like one of the countries i went to visit was albania and albania was the worst of the soviet countries and that's a hard contest to win like there are caverns all over albania that the government dug out because the whole story there was albania was the richest most desirable country in the world and they were absolutely surrounded by enemies it's like the ultimate paranoid paranoid totalitarian states you know and they're they're not very happy about the devastation that wreaked for 60 years and you know they look to the west to the best part of the west and think god don't lose that guys like we had the totalitarian utopia and it wasn't i wouldn't recommend it so i'm going through all these countries and people are telling me this concern they have and then they also say, well, we feel like we're voices crying in the wilderness, like we're, we're concerned about the direction of the culture war, let's say. But if we say anything about it, we get taken out by the mob. And, but then I went to like 14 countries and everyone said the same thing. And I thought, well, if, there's, if the same thing is happening in 14 countries, you're not a voice crying in the wilderness. You're just people who aren't communicating very well with each other. So I thought, well, why isn't there an international organization that's really centrist, you know, that would attract traditionalist, small C conservatives and classic liberals alike? You know, we don't want the ultranationalist types because yeah, they go off the deep end in one particular way. And, you know, the, the, the radical leftist globalist utopians who are under the, the grip of the Marxist ideas, that's a very small minority of people. It's a huge number of people in the reasonable middle, but they don't seem to, they've abdicated their responsibility. That's a good way of thinking about it. So then I started talking when I went through Europe. I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about organizing a convention where I could bring people together to talk about a different vision and also maybe to share specific policy ideas that worked, right? So that's more concrete. And everyone I talked to, said, I'd really be interested in that. I'll change my schedule. I'll do everything I can to help. And that just happened in every country. And so I thought, well, that's weird because, you know, this is a preposterous idea. And what should happen is that people, you know, maybe they're pleased to meet me and they give some lip service to the idea that just ends there. That's the destiny of most ideas. That isn't what happened. And I went to the UK and started talking about it. Exactly the same thing happened. People were just like, sign me up, man, what can I do? And I went to Washington, I talked to the Republican Study Committee about this, and they make policy for the Republicans, and the same thing happened. A whole bunch of Republicans came up and said, we'll change our schedule, make sure you have the conference at some time when the House is sitting so we can attend. Is there anything I can do to help? And I realized then, you know, the conservative types, they're pretty good at implementing 
They're pretty good incremental movers because they're conscientious, but they're not very good at vision. And so they get reactionary, you know, and what happens on the Republican side is they're always pointing to the left saying, you go too far, you go too far, but there's no vision. So it's hard for them to attract young people. It turns out if you put forward something that approximates an, an invitational vision, they're just all over that, like no time flat. So, so then how to implement it? Well, we got together a group of people in London twice, very diverse group of people, and uh, we hashed out these five questions that I presented to you, and everyone basically agreed, despite a wide range of political opinions in the room. Said, yeah, those seem to be the key questions. And then we, we figured out that we needed to put this forward as an, as an invitation, and not as a top-down, you know, compulsion-based, you have to do this or the planet's going to be doomed. It has to be an invitation. And so, and now we're trying to work out the details. And well, the first real move will be to open this up to public participation, figure out how to do that, to get a dialogue going, but then also to have this conference, October 31st, November 1st, and November 2nd in London. And uh, I plan to do three lectures at night there, um, one on crisis of the West, one on environmental stewardship, and one on metaphysics, public lecture, to kind of anchor the convention. We've got, I think, the Apollo in London already set up for that. And, uh, you know, and our goal, God willing, is that we develop a vision that people, everyone says, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, what can I do? Instead of the vision being, you're emitting too much carbon dioxide there, buddy, and enough cars and comedians for you. Yeah. So, we'll see. But the thing that's been striking is how rapidly this came together and how motivated people were to participate. We had people from Australia, for example, who have lots to do, the people who came. They flew all the way from Australia for a two-day meeting, three weeks ago, to discuss this. They were only there for two days. People came from Washington and from all over Europe. It's weird. But I think the reason is, and you know, you can, you know, this is the, say, the people perish for lack of vision. Absolutely. And this vision we're being offered is this dire, bloody apocalypse. And, you know, we have to limit our consumption. We have to make energy expensive. Everyone can't have enough. We have to accept limits. There's too many people on the planet. We have to run around like frightened tyrants to clamp everything down. It's like, all that's doing, it's demoralizing young men like mad. Young people aren't even having relationships anymore because especially the men, if they're not bloody patriarchal tyrants. They're virgin raping planetary despoilers. You know, it's like, what kind of vision is that for young men? It just makes them sick. And I've seen, believe me, I've seen plenty of that. The people are so grateful if you provide them with an alternative that says, you know, that ambitious striving that you have within you, that's, that could be, that's something that's making itself manifest in the, in the optimal way as, as something that's the highest, not just a manifestation of your tyrannical, patriarchal, rapacious nature. That's what we tell young men, like nonstop from the time they're three onward. And then what, you know? Then they're all timid shells of themselves, embarrassed about everything they want and do. They don't even have enough 
fine to approach a woman and try to establish a relationship. They're in love with Tinkerbell, the porn fairy, instead. It's horrible. And so we're hoping to put forward a vision that that's an invitation you know, to the table. And with the idea that we got our act together, especially given our technological power, God only knows what sort of world we can build. You know, but definitely one where there was enough for everybody. Enough of everything basic and enough opportunity, education, resources. I'm working with Bjorn Lomberg on this. So I'm very happy about that because Bjorn, like, he's the real thing. You know? He's done the work. So that's very good to have him on board. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. I got a couple other projects on the way. How could you have time for other projects if you're doing this? Subsidiary organization. You know, like, I got a lot of people around me who are doing their work, you know. So, if I don't micromanage, provide people with maximal autonomy and try to get committed people, can distribute the effort, which you have to, as much as possible, and then who knows what's possible. So I'm working with my son, we have this app called Essay, which we launched back in November, that teaches people how to write while they use it. We just developed Dark Mode for that, that's released this week, we got about 8,000 subscribers on that. Dark Mode, yeah. Dark Mode, you can use it at night without blinding yourself. And so it teaches you how to, teaches you how to write while using it. It's word processing, but it teaches you how to write and to think, because if you learn to write, you learn to think. And it teaches you how to edit. You know, concentrate on each word, to evaluate every phrase, to evaluate every sentence, to evaluate the organization of sentences within paragraphs, and paragraphs within sequence properties within the essay, and to think about how to produce a set of thoughts and then how to critically evaluate them. So that's fun. That's going very well. We have, like I said, about 8,000 subscribers now, about, about 80,000 users. So that's a good project because we'd like to teach a million people to write. I think the ordinary person, if they used essay instead of a standard word processor, the first thing they wrote would be the best thing they ever wrote, right off the bat. Because we built the tools right into the software, like it steps you through the process of writing. How so? so well, well, one of the features, for example, is, um, so imagine that you, uh, imagine that you want to write about something, whatever it is, the first, question is, well, what, what problem are you trying to solve? What's the question? And then there's an injunction in the documentation. If the question that you're trying to solve doesn't grip you, then you're starting the whole bloody thing off with a lie. Like it has to be something you care about. It has to be something that grips you. So it has to be a question you want to answer to, like the questions you ask in the podcast. And then what? Well, then you write down what you think. And if you don't know enough, go read. And then write down what you think. And don't worry about ordering it. Just get it down. And then it steps you through. It's like, okay, here's a paragraph. Break the paragraph into sentences. Now, here's a little box that opens up. Write five variants of the sentence. Shorten it, make it more concise. Write five variants that makes that sentence precise. When you get a better sentence, hit click and it'll snap into this. Then there's another module that helps you move the sentences around. So here's your paragraph. Well, Maybe there are too many sentences in it and the sentences aren't in the right place. Order the sentences so that each paragraph is like a little coherent essay. And so then do the same thing with the paragraph. You run through them. So we ask people, separate production from editing. 
get this get the question right do your research separate production from editing overproduce then edit edit for words did you use the right word in every is every word the right word is every phrase the right phrase are the phrases organized into proper sentences are the sentences sequenced properly so that's the editing that's and that's there's no difference between that really and critical thinking so that's the that's the essay yeah. and i used that process for my students earlier iterations of this and by the third draft of the essays they wrote there was the best essays they ever wrote in their life like this actually works it's how i write by the way for whatever whatever utility that might be you know it is how i write i tried to formalize that and, and then with my daughter Michaela I've started this Peterson Academy and our plan this is a funny plan we want to drive the cost of a bachelor's degree down to $4000 and so we've got 30 professors on board so far I've been able to identify stellar lecturers from all over the world we bought a studio in Miami we have the professors come there we try to be very hospitable and to treat them well which doesn't generally happen at universities by the way and uh they lecture four they give four 2 hour lectures on whatever they really want to teach about and we just they have a lot of autonomy you know we're not constraining them it says the rule is we'll put an audience together for you in the studio we want you to teach what you love at the edge of your ability and uh we'll offer that to as many people as we possibly can we're pursuing accreditation but through a variety of different avenues so we hope to be able what we'll do is take two or three of those Eight-hour lectures, bundle them together. That'll give you one university credit. We want to, we want to get actual credit for it. And then we're planning as well. We hope. So imagine we sell, we we have charge tuition, um, and we'll try to keep that low cost. Like I said, we want to knock the cost of the whole degree down to four thousand dollars. That's ninety-five percent reduction in cost. That's the plan. And then, if you're in the developed world, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to pair yourself with a student in the developing world. Who couldn't afford it, and we'll put give that we'll give them the, the opportunity for free, but they'll be like your partner. So that should produce some interesting partnerships between people, you know. But also give people who don't have access to high quality university level education a real in. And we are talking to some different institutions, you know, mortar and brick institutions, about how accreditation might be. pursued and how we can partner with them to also offer people other elements of the university experience that you can't easily virtualize. And we've developed a good app that is adds a social component to it so that people can discuss the lectures while they're while they're watching them and you know can make social contacts and maybe have meet up groups in different cities. So we want to universalize higher education. And then we're going to we're going to set the grading system in stone. So the grade you'll get for this university will be your performance. So there'll be no grade inflation. So, so what we're hoping to is that it, we're going to also, you know, amalgamate it with this essay program so that all our graduates are able to write. We're hoping that a degree from this university will indicate to employers a true level of confidence. So that's the plan. We've got like this every other professors on board already. I recorded. Three lectures for it now. One on the Sermon on the Mount, so that was very fun. One on it'll be a two-part one, but I did the first half of Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, and I did a eight-hour summary of my book Maps of Meaning. And so we have all sorts of other people who, uh, you know, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, to MIT, 
and then people from outside the academy too. You know, brilliant. Jonathan Pajot just did a series on symbolic thought. He's absolutely brilliant. Deepest religious thinker I've ever met. Old Testament prophet, man. Something to see. So we're going to roll that out and hope in November. And, you know, I'm working with the Daily Wire and that seems to be going great too. They've, they've been great partners. They leave me the hell alone. I can still do my YouTube channel and offer it for nothing. You know, I do some extra work for them behind the scenes. Do a 30-minute interview after my my YouTube interviews and put that behind the paywall. And I've done a bunch of documentaries for them. Some on Western Civilization. They're, they've been really good partners. They, like I said, they leave me alone and they help me. That's a pretty good deal. So, so, and my wife and I are cruising all around the world. You know, do these lectures all the time. That's fun. It's ridiculously entertaining. And she's getting really good at it too. She opens the show. She usually tells about a 10 minute story about one of the rules from my latest book. Ties that in with her life. She's getting to be a real good public speaker. That's really fun. She's got a good comedic touch. And my son's going to tour with us starting on the 30th. He's a musician. I've had a musician, David Cotter, open my shows for the last 30 lectures. And he plays classical and guitar. So he does a 20 minute set while everyone's coming in to sit down. So that kind of sets a nice tone for the lecture and then we do this exploration of an idea and I do a Q&A with my wife about the lecture. It's an amazing amount of things you're doing. Like, how do you have this energy? Like, where are you getting all the energy to do all this stuff? It's got to be overwhelming. Well, I'm not sick anymore. That helps. Yeah. yeah. Well, you seem this is you seem the better. Yeah, you seem better now than you were even when I saw you a while ago. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've never done an interview with you where I was healthy. Wow. You know, like the best I ever got with you was about sixty percent. So I'm you up seem about eighty yeah, percent now. You seem great. Better. You seem Much like completely now. there. Much better. Well, it's hard to be completely there. <laughs> and there are people who would debate that. Right. Well, you know, sure. But yeah, but the, the lectures, it's such an adventure. It's so, it's so crazy. It's so positive. You know, I don't talk about political things much at the lectures. I'll make a joke now and then. That's about it. But mostly it's metaphysical exploration, you know, exploration of narrative, I would say. People come there because... For the same reason they listen to you, you know? They're trying to figure something out. Yeah. Well, it, there's a deep hunger for that. Because there are a lot of people that don't feel served by the narrative that they're being fed. Yeah. And they also don't feel like there's anyone around them that they aspire to. Yeah. There's no one around them that seems to be living a life that looks satisfying or rewarding or yeah. attractive. Yeah. And that's more... It, it, so one of the things... So I was doing a different lecture every night. For, for about 70 minutes and then doing a Q&A and that was wearing me out because it was sort of like writing a whole book chapter every night you know because I want, really want to do something different and you know I draw from stories that I've aggregated it's not like 100% new content but it's it's like variations on a theme and that was wearing me out so Tammy suggested at one point that we just try a straight Q&A and that doesn't take as much preparation and I kind of like the pressure of having to spontaneously answer Mm. And uh, people liked that just as much, and so that made it a bit more sustainable. But was what was also cool, and we didn't we didn't realize this. People liked to see her and I interacting, you know, and that was a real revelation to us both because we were doing it more for reasons of of necessity. 
you know, knowing that people would like the Q&As, but it simplified things. And because we're, you know, I don't know how many shows we did last year. 200 maybe? Like a lot. All over the place. So it's... Man, it's time to get to the next venue and be prepared. So it was tiring. But one of the things that happened was that people were seemed really pleased to see us interact. And we realized that there's a lot of people out there who never really had a good model of couples communication, ever. And that's pretty sad, you know. So, yeah, there's, there's plenty of wandering around in the desert. Yeah. But I'll tell you something else that's cool. You know, when I first did this back in 2018, did a meet and greet after, and I'd say a third of the people were in pretty bad emotional distress. You know, often when they came to meet me after the lectures, they were in tears or, you know, they had some pretty brutal story to relate and it was pretty emotionally grueling to see that night after night. And now, there's way more women have gone. There's way more couples. And the guys are way more put together. So that's pretty cool. You know, and lots of them, especially the ones that get the meet and greet tickets, they've been listening for five or six years. They've really been trying to get the lives together. You know, and so most of the stories I hear now are stories like, I was in a pretty rough place, but I started my life together, and you know, now I have this girlfriend, and we're getting married, or we're just having mm. our first child, and now I have a business, and mm. here's what I'm doing that's really working, and they're all standing up. And, the half of them are in suits or three-piece suits and that's something man i mean that's partly why we keep doing it Tammy and I, you know it's like it's so positive i think well why would you keep doing that that's but, an overwhelming responsibility too right like the, the the feeling behind that that you've had this enormously positive impact on these people's lives and then that's not something you set out to do as a person, but this is almost something that was thrust upon you as an adult. I mean, you became very famous as a professor who was, you know, fairly anonymous, just teaching, and then all of a sudden you've been thrust into the public conversation worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's some of it's, it's, what would you say, it's utterly unpredictable and it's utterly surreal and entirely predictable, both at the same time, because like, I knew that what I was dealing with when I was working at Harvard, when I was writing maps and meaning, I knew that there was something about that that was core. I knew it. And I could tell partly because of the effect it was having on my students when I was teaching. So I was watching that. And the typical comment from my course evaluation was, this course changed the way I looked at everything. And so, and that's a pretty radical claim. And, you know, I had 20 years of that, practicing doing that. And then I started lecturing on TV Ontario because my classes were popular and that got an audience and then you know I had a pretty big corpus of work online by the time I objected to Bill C-16 and then well that brought a huge audience in partly for the scandal that I had all that content so they came for the scandal but stayed for the content mm. but it, it is there is an element of predictability to it because I am a clinician so I'm interested in helping and that's a deep interest Part of that's curiosity, and part of that's fear of hell, say, you know, so to speak. Um, I'm, I've always been interested in being an educator. I like lecturing. I like having students. And so, you know, I'm a clinical educator. And then I started playing with YouTube. And it turned out that could scale. 
you know, and then there's this hunger for a uniting narrative that what was identified by people like Carl Jung, you know, 60 years ago. So there's an element of it in some way that's inevitable. God died, you know, that's Nietzsche's pronouncement. Well, that sets up a certain kind of stage, a certain kind of hunger. You know, it's the hunger for the revivification of the dead father in, in archetypal terms. And that's responsibility, most fundamentally. It's discipline. That's the sort of thing Jocko pushes, you know, and you too, to a large degree. Because uh, young men, they're clamoring for disciplined responsibility, weirdly enough. And you can't offer that if you think that all male activity is just toxic masculinity, you know. But you're wise enough to know that's not true. And so I saw Jocko last night, by the way, so that was last night or the night before. So that was quite fun. It's the, there's a thing that men need. Um, they need difficult tasks, and they need to know that they can overcome difficult yeah. tasks. And, and through that, you develop your your human potential you develop what you're capable of doing and if you don't encounter those things in life you you remain feeble and you may fetal even yeah and very uh, not just immature but um insecure well and not just insecure but insecure to get after then bitter yeah then resentful yes. then dangerous yes right right yeah yeah, yeah. the alternative like get after it weak insecure bitter men are not harmless no, no. Quite the contrary. And they try to damage people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they try to oh, damage yeah. people oftentimes because in comparison to those people they're trying to damage, they feel they, they come up short. They don't like it. They don't like the feeling, yeah. and they, they try to destroy the thing yeah. that makes well, them feel bad. That's Cain and Abel. Yeah. You know, that's, and it's so interesting because in the biblical story, that's the first story about human beings, right? Because Adam and Eve are made by God. They don't count. The first two human beings are fratricidal brothers mm. engaged in a war of envy that degenerates into the flood and the Tower of Babel. It's stunning. It's stunning. It's so relatable. I mean, if you are a person that, you know, strives to work hard and accomplish things and you have grand ambitions, you will find so many people that try to destroy that. Yeah, but, but I mean, I mean, what's your life like when you go out in public? People are friendly. How often? Mostly. 99% more, more than 99%. Right. But I'm friendly. Yeah, I know, I know. But still, it's remarkable, right? Yeah. I mean, because you, you, you're, you're, uh, what, you're an axis of contention online. But, I mean, you're very good at handling people. I've watched how you treat people. But, but it is the case that when you go out in public, I mean, how many bad encounters have you had with people in public? Very few, very, very few. Right, yeah. well, that's the same with me. Yeah. You know? and but so, it's also like when I'm in public, I'm in public doing my things, you know? I mean, either in What public, if you're just walking around on the street, though? People are friendly, yeah. Yeah, and that, I suspect that's true wherever you go. Yes. Yeah, yeah so, so it's so interesting, you know, because there are people who are motivated at least in part and sometimes almost completely by envy. But most people aren't like that. And even the people who are like that mostly aren't like that 100%. Right, that's the thing, right? Is that people are different depending upon the circumstances. And I think most of the people that you even interact with negatively online, if you choose to interact with them at all, but most of the people that will post things negatively about you online, if you could be alone with them and have a conversation yeah. with them, just a one-on-one -on -one conversation where you could find common ground. Oh, most, yeah, like most, most student activists, if you went to their parents' house for dinner with them, you'd think, well, that kid's like 
85% like every other kid. Yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it too, you know, because if you don't understand this, you get conspiratorial. So, yeah. So imagine there's a system of ideas. We were talking about the system of ideas that might motivate some of the WEF, you know, top-down shenanigans. And we talked about the religious substrate and yeah. the idea that the planet has too many people on it. It's not, it's not like there's anybody there who's fully possessed by those ideas. It's the ideas have a relationship that's part parcel of the set of ideas. And each person is a partial carrier of those ideas. But if you get 200 people in a room who are partial carriers of that set of ideas, you've got the whole set of ideas there. And that's an animating spirit. Then it acts like a conspiracy. Mm. And that isn't to say that there aren't sometimes also actual conspiracies, but it's very interest useful to separate out the conspiratorial nature of a set of dynamic ideas from the people who are partial carriers of the ideas. So Jung, Carl Jung said at one point, uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. And there's a religious idea that's reflective of that, that the cosmos is a battle between principalities. So that'd be like a battle between spirits. And there, there's a real truth in that because the culture war we're in right now is a battle of systems of ideas. This is why what's happening on the conservative front, say in Florida, has some danger. It's like, well, we want to ban CRT. It's like, well. That's a war that has to be raged in the realm of the abstract. It has to be raged. It has to be raged in, you know, metaphorically in heaven. It's not, as soon as you concretize it, you fall prey to the same pathology. You'll end up enabling Sensors. It has to be debated. Yeah, it, it has, has to, to be, be discussed. It has to be thrashed out in the realm of ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. You ha you can't defeat bad ideas. I don't think you can defeat bad ideas with law. You have to defeat bad ideas. I think you have to defeat bad ideas with a better vision. Actually, I don't even think you can defeat bad ideas in some sense. Right. Because there's always the danger that while fighting them, you turn into a monster. You know. What's that Nietzschean statement? If you gaze to, don't, don't forget that when you gaze into an abyss, that the abyss also gazes into you, and that someone who spends all their time fighting monsters can easily turn into a monster themselves. Well, isn't it also that there's different people at different stages of their lives that will adopt these ideas because they seem the most attractive at the time? Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that person will hang on to that their whole life. And oftentimes people shed terrible ideas that they've adopted early in their life because they've Definitely. recognized the flaws. And yeah. the only way to recognize well, everyone's the flaws, like that yes. who doesn't get ossified, you know? Right. And the so, only way to recognize those flaws is to have those flaws exposed to you. Yeah. You have to you have to have conversations. You, you, have, you to have, have to have and they have, have to, to think. Be, yeah, they have to be honest conversations. And you right? have to have the ability to analyze them. Yeah, well, what happens, you know, when you have an honest conversation that's engrossing? is that you're actually optimizing abstract death. So, you know, maybe your head's full of stupid ideas. Why are they stupid? You go act them out and you die. So that's why they're stupid or you suffer. And so what you hope happens is you can kill off those ideas before they possess you to the point where you act them out. So what do you do? You go test them in conversation. And hopefully, you know, you and I, we've been talking all day and Hopefully, the consequence of that is that we both come away from this discussion somewhat less stupid and blind than we were. 
And the reason that that happened is because each of us have let go of some presumptions that were tyrannical. You know, not enough to, you know, if you lose your whole system of belief, it just takes you out, you're in the desert, but you can do that optimally. So just the right amount of you is dying. Then you have to do that to sustain your life because to sustain your life biologically, parts of you are dying all the time. Like unrestricted growth is just cancer, right? So right. you have to optimally die all the time to live. And it's the same on the idea front. And you experience optimal death and growth in meaningful conversation. You know, you can do that while thinking too, but most people think by talking. Mm. In fact, thinking is internalized talking. Yes. So most people think by talking. That's one of the dangers of podcasts. You're, you're thinking out loud. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but it's also one of the things that makes it exciting, right? Because if yeah. it's real, then people are along for that. And it's cool because I kind of do the same thing in my lectures. I don't prepare my lectures. I have a question in mind that I'm trying to answer. And then I go on stage and I try to answer the question mm. or investigate the question at least, you know? And as I've got better at it, Usually what happens is I go a bunch of different places and then I can snap it together at the end. And that's mm. fun, you know, it's like all right. these yeah. plates are in the air and you just sure. bring them all together at the end. It's like the punch, final punchline of yeah. a comedian set. Exactly you like know? that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's when exactly that, like When that. bits are constructed. It's like a callback. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, and that's what you're trying to do when you're yeah. constructing bits. You're trying to figure out how to tie it together yeah. optimally. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah. to dispense with what's unnecessary, yes. right? To get to the gist and to tie it together. And it's so fun when you can land on your feet. I've been watching Tammy do this when she's learning how to tell a story on stage you know and her stories are about 10 minutes long she has an opening here's the problem set and then she lays out some narrative and says well here's you know how we could explore this and mm. now and then she can go and snap it's nice oh, oh it's so nice yeah it's like you got to the point yeah and the point hey that's the direction that's yes. the moral of the story yeah. jokes do that all the time yeah so that's the goal i think the closest thing to what i do on stage is probably what stand-up comedians do. You know, although you guys usually run through a prepared set, but you have a universe of potential jokes, right? Mm -hmm. And my suspicions are that you're watching how the audience is reacting and crafting what you're selecting to, you know, to bring everybody on board. And you want to tell a story that has a narrative arc and it comes to a conclusion. Have you noticed in your podcast that if you're really paying attention to the dialogue that the podcast has a narrative arc all by itself yes it's so cool eh? yeah that it'll yeah. you'll see oh we're halfway done and then well now here's the natural ending yeah so and that's cool that that narrative emerges just as a consequence of focused attention but it's definitely the case yeah so yeah it's um it's a, a very fascinating way to explore life publicly Right. It's a very fascinating way to explore life publicly and um, allow other people to take in some of these thoughts and form their own. Yep. Because that's what a lot of people are doing. Yep. Right? They're, they're listening to this and they're, they're actually thinking about various aspects that resonate with their own life yep. and then applying their own unique view of the world to that. Yeah. And you know, and seeing how they can maybe uh, how, use it to enhance them, or whatever yeah. they disagree on, well, why they disagree on it, yeah. and solidify that position. In their yeah, well, as well, and, and the, the good podcast does does two things at least. It 
it presents people with some new information, which is part of why I love doing podcasts. Like, it's such a privilege, and you know this perfectly well, to call anybody in the world up and say, hey, I'm pretty curious about this. Right. And you look like you know more about that than anyone else in the world. Would you like to talk about it? Yes. And then they say yes. It's like, oh, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. And so you get to have that experience of learning. and But at the same time, you can model the exploration of ideas. Yeah. And so then people, they learn two things. They learn whatever the, the facts of the matter are, let's say. But they also learn how to conduct an exploratory dialogue. And both of those, if you can learn those both at the same time, that's perfect. Right. You know? And that's really, you're basically using the Socratic method of instruction, right? Because the Socratic method was all inquiry. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Like, you're not asking the audience, but you are, essentially, because you're a proxy for the audience. It's like, I don't know what this means. Do you want to explain it? Well, oftentimes I am, too, because I might not even, I might know what the answer is, but I have to ask it anyway, yeah. because I want other people to know it. Right. So instead of saying it, I have to ask. Yeah. And yeah. I have to, and also, it's like, I want to know how people think and how they come to these conclusions, which is really yeah. fascinating in and of itself because everyone's path to whatever the, their own conclusions are very different. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things you learn in therapy as a therapist is you can't really provide people with the answer. So maybe, you know, someone will come to me with a set of problems and I'll think, well, I know how to solve that. I could just tell them. But what happens if you tell them is they just don't do it. Right. So what you want to do is you want to ask them a bunch of questions about the problem and about what they might view as a hypothetical solution. And then they develop the intermediary steps along the way to the conclusion. Then they're actually likely to act it out. Same thing happens with kids. You have to walk people through the process. And you know, a lot of what, well, what we both do, I think, in our podcast is we invite people along for the ride. Yeah. Presenting a package of pre-programmed options. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You get that a bit because you select the people you talk to, but but you can't talk to everyone and you're going to have a viewpoint. So that's, you know, as long as you're not playing games with that or any more than you, you know, than you can avoid. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, for me, this has been like an unexpected education in a very bizarre way. When I first started doing it, I didn't think I was going to get educated. I thought I was just going to have fun with my friends and fuck around mm -hmm. and then along the line bringing guests on then it just sort of evolved on its own mm -hmm. yeah right i always i often think that this thing made itself yeah as well, bizarre as that sounds well okay yes and no eh? it made itself in some way but you followed the golden thread of what was meaningful and interesting you know, and that is a spirit. That, that's the golden thread that leads you out of the maze. You know, and something, you'll be conducting a podcast and something will grip you. You think, oh, there's something there. And then maybe if you're awake and aware, then you start doing more of that, you know. And that has a life. So that's what happens in the story of Exodus when Moses encounters the burning bush. Because it's a bush, eh? It's not an oak tree that's 300 feet tall. Right. This is a bush. And so the story goes, Moses is walking along and something catches his eye. He didn't have to go over and look. It catches his eye and he thinks, what the hell's that? And then he goes over and he starts to pay attention. And the more he pays attention, the more the, more the voice of God manifests itself to him. That's what that story means. Is, you know, so something catches your interest and glimmers. Then that's the gold beckoning in the distance. It captures your interest. And then if you pursue that, like it leads you into the depths. 
we've I don't know if we've talked about this before, but what do you think about those scholars in Israel that believe that the burning bush was some sort of a psychedelic experience? Oh well, I I think we have no idea how psychedelic experience shaped religious presumption. Have you read uh, Brian Murrescu's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I interviewed him. Oh yeah. Amazing. I mean, look, it, we know that the shamanic tradition, which is God only knows how many tens of thousands of years old. You know, it might be, is it millions of years old? Maybe. You know, human beings have been using fire for two million years. It, like, it could be really, really old. And the, the shamanic tradition is definitely a psychedelic tradition. And one of the things Murarescu did was show quite clearly that the, the all of Greek culture was embedded in what looks like a collective psychedelic experience. And so, yeah, I think that, I think the evidence, like Mircea Eliade, a great religious scholar, studied shamanism, and he thought that the use of psychedelics was a degeneration of the original tradition, but I don't think that's true at all. I think that the psychedelic tradition is part parcel of the universal religious heritage of mankind. Like, I don't know what that means. You know, I've talked to people like Robin Carhart Harris, who studies the neurology of psychedelic experience, and he said that what it does is produce something akin to a to a, a hyper-stress experience. So imagine you're extremely stressed, like your life's in danger. And so you have to open yourself up to the possibility of radically new ideas. Well, a psychedelic substance puts you in that state of mind. And so that can be hellish, because you can, you can collapse into like a catastrophic fight-or-flight defensive response and magnified by the hallucinogen, and you're just in hell. But that isn't the only necessary outcome. And so the psychedelic experience definitely mimics something like radical learning. And it does, it also seems to reduce the effect of memory on perception. Because most of what you see in the world is memory. It's just a short, that's why, you know, when you look at a word, printed word, you read the word. You can't not read the word. And that's because you, you're seeing the memory. You're not seeing, like when I look at the sign behind you, I'm not lost in the yellow in the details. I see the Joe Rogan experience. Part parcel of perception. It's all memory. What a psychedelic does in part is remove the inhibition of memory from perception. And that reimmerses you in the complex world and shows you how remarkable and beyond comprehension everything really is. That's real. But uh, the question is what to do with that. You know, Timothy Leary, his doctrine was turn on, tune in, turn on, tune in, drop out. And that devastated the whole culture, that idea. It's like, well, if we just shed our presuppositions and the whole industrial nightmare, we'd all be freedom-loving hippies wandering around Eden. It's like, yeah. no, I wanted to do a line of psychedelic products. Uh, turn on, tune in, grow up. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's much, much, much funnier, much better. Yeah, and that's also possible. That's a possible path through this sort of... Uh, quest for spiritual enlightenment yeah and it's not it's the the timothy leary thing was i mean it was dismissed by a lot of other psychedelic pioneers of the time they they saw the flaws oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah definitely the people who were already experimenting with ideas of proper set and also they knew the, that back in the early 60s yes and also the people that had no desire to run a group of like-minded people 
which Leary did. Which yeah. He wanted to... You know, he fell into that hippie yeah. culture, that hippie counterculture. Also, I think he fell into the cult of personality. He yeah. Fell, fell into the, this thing that happens when too many people are paying attention to you. Yeah. And you think you have all the answers. Yeah. It's very dangerous. Yeah, especially if you combine that with psychedelic Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That turns out to be a problem. Right, and the, mm -hmm. the intoxicating grip of that, the, the power that you have over these people, which is very... It's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. And if you are a guru, you know, air quotes, yeah. and you're the person doing that, like, how many of them just start cults? And oh, how yeah. many of them, you know, it yeah. winds up being sexual? Well, Jung was asked once to comment on psychedelic experience. I think he was asked about what Huxley was doing, and Jung's answer was, beware of unearned wisdom. Mm. Right. Very yeah. smart. Very smart. They're very, very smart. Yeah. Unearned. Unearned wisdom. Uh, yeah. wis all, almost all wisdom comes at a price and a yeah. long, long road to get to that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It's not a quick fix. There's no, no quick fixes. This idea that you're just going to trip balls and figure it all out. Yeah, and then Ooh. you've got it. No, yeah. that's... Mm -mm. No. <laughs> no, and everyone that I know that thinks yeah. they've figured it out are, are the most lost. Yeah. They're, you know, the, especially the ones yeah, that are espousing it to people. Yeah, if you're lucky, you can come out of an experience like that knowing that, you know, like Socrates, and Socrates may have learned this from psychedelic experience. It seems quite probable because he participated in the Eleusinian Mysteries. Yes. He said, I know that I don't know. No, he was radically open to the revelation of his own ignorance, and certainly psychedelics can provide that. It's like, oh, I see. <laughs> I don't have a clue. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first step. <laughs> yeah. That's the, the first lesson you learn is you don't know shit. Yeah. And also the, just the, the overwhelming understanding that this is available, that this experience is available, and, and it's so alien to modern experience, and just an, an average everyday experience, that this thing is... Behind the veil. Yeah, and it's right there. And it's, it's so scary for yeah. people. Yeah, well, maybe this time... You know, there are wise people working on that front, like Roland Griffiths, who unfortunately is very sick at the moment. And, uh, you know, he's he's approached this with a lot more reverence and respect than more casual experimenters like Leary. And maybe this time, you know, God willing, we'll get it right and introduce these strange ancient chemicals back into our culture without blowing the lid right off it. Right, and I think one of the best gateways to that is dealing with people uh, who have trauma. Uh, soldiers with M uh, you know, PTSD, where they're doing MDMA yeah. therapy, and also other people that have had violent experiences in their life with MDMA. Yeah. It's helped well, them to overcome Griffith that. Is, Griffiths has helped people deal with you know, paralyzing death, anxiety, consequential to cancer diagnosis. Yeah. You know, and those studies, they're very, they're very dry. You know, we gave psilocybin to a group of of people who are suffering from cancer and their relationship with death radically transformed. And, you know, the implication is somehow that's a chemical transformation. And mm -hmm. of course, to some degree it is because it was induced by a chemical, but there's a mystery there. It's like, well, what happened to those people in that right. six hours that transformed their vision of death, right? That's a... Yeah. <laughs> And what happens? There's a bit of a mystery there. During the most profound psychedelic experiences, are you actually in the presence of God? I mean, is are there moments during those things where you kind of see it? You know, yeah. that that the veil does get lifted, and you do briefly for a moment. Yeah. And well, then, I think the same thing happens to you to some degree when you fall in love. Mm. You know, like when you're in love with your kids. Well, you see them 
better than you've ever seen anyone. Yeah. You see deeper into them than you've ever seen into anyone. Yeah. So love is the partial lifting of that veil of ignorance. Yeah. And I think that's true of romantic love too, is you you see into the soul of the other person, so to speak, you see what they could be. Yeah. And that's what you and they see what you could be and you fall in love with that possibility. And that's not a delusion. It's not a chemical delusion. It's the basis of life itself. It's real. I think it also applies to all love. I mean, just love for your fellow human being. And just the, in, yeah, in, in approaching people. It. Yeah, if you can manage it. But approaching people in that way. Yeah. Even people that have wronged you. Even yeah. people that are, you know, that are lost. Yeah. Apply. Yeah, it's really good to remember that. You know, yeah. one of the things I try to do with my family when we get, you know, sporadically attacked, often by people who really would like to, let's say, take me out and along with me, my family. We sit and talk until we find a pathway forward that is characterized by the least amount of, you know, desire for revenge and anger possible. Mm. After contemplating yes. the <laughs> anger and the revenge quite deeply, you know, because you have to let that voice have its say too. Yeah, you know? that's, there's no, the, you know, there's no positive outcome in revenge. No. It's a horrible no. path to Fun go as down. it might be and in it, the moment. It also, there's a, a, a extreme desire um, to feed that monster. Yeah. And that's, that's what's dangerous with people. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that's sure. a narrative that's been going on for... I mean, it's such a satisfying narrative, too. Like the revenge film or the yeah. revenge novel. Well, yeah, and it's hard to distinguish that from justice. Right. You know, because you don't want the wrongdoer to escape scot-free. Right. You know, so it's a very thin line. But mm -hmm. with regards to your enemies, it's like, well, what what do you hope maybe for your enemies? Well, you hope they wouldn't be enemies. That would be yes. good. Wouldn't that's it be better if they were allies? Yeah. That would really be good. Would it be okay if they only suffered enough to learn? You know, assuming they're wrong and you're right, and I'm yeah. careful about that assumption, but sometimes you, mm -hmm. know, you do get attacked by people who are clearly bad actors. It'd still be better if you could have what you really wanted. It'd still be better if they could be transformed into people who could see the light. And oftentimes their suffering is their knowledge that they were wrong. Yep. And when people have wrongly attacked you, they and then realize it, they have to realize in themselves this flaw that they have in their personality. Yeah, that's rough. That's hard. Yeah, that's why tyrants double down. Man. Yes. And that's that's another down. thing that's so cool about the Exodus story. Yeah. That, you know, even when God Himself reveals Himself to the Pharaoh, essentially, all He does is double down. Yeah. And that's, you know, and you might say, well, that's what tyrants do. It's like, no, no, that's that's what people do. When we're talking about groups like the World Economic Forum, don't you think there's also, there's a there's a draw to that, I don't know if it's people like Trudeau or people that go there, you're, you're with the, at the in crowd. Oh, yeah. you're, you're with the people that are the, the big decision makers that are going to be in power. You're with yeah. the people that know where the bunker is yeah. if, if the nuclear bombs drop. You're with the people that are making the decisions that are shaping politics behind the scenes that are manipulating the relationships between corporations and politicians and lawmakers and across the board yeah. and so there's this desire that people always have to be a part of the in crowd or the part of the secret group yeah. that's running things which is why groups that are running things are so dangerous well, this is also something that we're concerned about with regard to this new organization. That's what I wanted to bring up. Oh, yeah, yeah. man, absolutely. I mean, the last thing 
that we're hoping is that we create a new thing that just turns into another WEF in 20 years. Right. You know, regardless of what we want. Because, right. And it's a tricky problem because there has to be some degree of international communication and consensus, right? Because we all do live on the same planet and we're pretty integrated now. And so there has to be something approximating, well, like I said, an international conversation. But the danger is the Tower of Babel. And the danger is that even engaging in that conversation, let alone leading it, leading it, right. you know, just ends up producing exactly the same outcome. And that's hopefully we have people who are wise enough to, first of all, not want that for themselves because they know about the danger. You know, the danger is you lose yourself in, yeah. in a real sense. And, and, and also who are humble enough in the, with regard to their conception of their own ignorance that they actually do genuinely want to hear what other people have to say. So you need extraordinary people to be a part of this. Though. Well, and then you loop, then you get looped right back into that problem is yeah. now you're surrounded by the extraordinary people. I right. think what you part, partly want to do is you want to remind yourself that part of the endeavor is to help everyone reveal what's extraordinarily extraordinary within them. Yes. Right, that that's there in everyone. Yes. Your job is to call it out. And I've seen, like, I've seen extraordinary people in the worst possible circumstances. You know, people who are laboring under lives that were so bloody dreadful that it would take you a year just to describe it, who were still doing everything they could to aim up. You know, right. Poor people, psychotic people, alcoholic relatives, yes. devastated community, ill like brutalized horrible childhood no friends yes. you know and still looking around to see if they could find something good to do and you would never wish those circumstances upon anyone because most people don't survive them yeah but a few people get through those with incredible character yeah that's for sure like you me park yeah perfect a good example, example. Yeah. an amazing that's example sure. like her her childhood her life experience in North Korea is one of the most horrific stories I've ever heard in my life. But because of that, because of that horrific, the horrific nature of the experiences that she had, she came out of this with this extraordinary character. And I had this a friend, Charles Joseph, a native carver from the West Coast. He was in a residential school in Canada and it was one of the ones that were genuinely bad. And it was like, it was bad. It was like Auschwitz level bad. It was really bad and he was brutalized, man. You can't listen to him talk for 10 minutes without like the tears rolling down your eyes. And, you know, he was devastated when he emerged, And but he put himself together, you know? He was on the street for a while, quit drinking, quit mucking about, started carving, like turned himself into quite the stellar creature, you know? Amazing moral. Again, you would never wish that on anyone. But, sure. but it's incredible how through that adversity you create this extraordinary person. Yeah. And that extraordinary person could be a great light to so many other people that are going through terrible times yeah. and define themselves by the terrible circumstances that they find themselves yeah. in, which is a real problem with people. Yeah, well, that's part of that victim narrative. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that's so comical about the Exodus narrative is that that's really what happens to the Israelites when they're in the desert, is they, they turn into whiny, backbiting victims. Mm. That's what happens. And it's like, it's the same thing 3,000 years ago. It's like, we don't know where we are. We're lost. We're, we're, we're resentful about it. We wish the tyranny would return. Yeah. And aren't we hard done by and... And, yeah. uh, and and gossiping. 
God. same old story man. It, it really is the same old story yeah. and this constant quest for meeting and understanding and fulfillment and a life worth living yeah. Yeah. well thing i think the thing that's really been catalyzed for me you know over the course of my life but particularly in the last five or six years is that i don't think there is anything more real than that meaningful story mm. and i mean real in every way i mean real as a manifestation of the central structure of the material world real metaphysically real psychedelically real practically like real mm. so and i think that instinct that orients you towards meaning that's the deepest connection you have to what is most real you know because people say well life isn't meaningful in its essence that just means you're a reductionist materialist atheist in your initial presuppositions it's easy to flip that and say no no the instinct that orients you towards engagement meaning that is the most real thing there is yes so and i believe that it's it's also what helps you stay on the straight and narrow when you're in pain so how can anything be more real than that you know what orients you when you're suffering right there's a definition of real real is that which orients you properly when you're suffering mm. so you know that's not at the same claim as you know the object's real right right it's a different idea but but it's still real it's more real it's very real yeah yeah and we are all, i mean the thing that we have in common is we're all just human and if we're all human there's always going to be this weird weirdness to existence and trying to figure out why and what it is and and also recognizing that some of the people that have defined why are so inherently flawed and they're very selfish in their definitions and you know you have to kind of sort that out and parse through it and one of the things that's been amazing about having a podcast is to present people with these different minds that have found their own way through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. That's I mean, what I loved about being a clinician too, is to see how different and crazy and strange and interesting people really are. If you mm. listen to it's like, you know, I had lots of clients in my practice who were pretty... They weren't people who would ever be put on a pedestal. You know, they were people who were in the dirt suffering away. But man, if you listen to them, they were so interesting that you just could hardly stand it. Mm. So that was a good thing to learn. And that you see, you know, you find gold in very unexpected places. Like I learned a lot from some of my most damaged clients. Mm, I would imagine just what's possible. Yeah, well, and yeah. How, how much people could still strive towards what was good, even if they had every reason to be. You know, I had clients whose lives were so terrible, you'd think no matter what they did, you'd think, yeah, it's no wonder you did that, because look what you went through. Right. But they didn't turn out to be and our prisons are serial filled with sexual people. slayers. Our they prisons didn't. are filled with people like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jordan, we just did another three hours that flew by in 10 minutes. Yep. Good to see you, Joe. <laughs> it's great to see you. Thank you. I appreciate you very much. Man. Oh, it's listen, a to come the see moment you. That, that that was happening, I had to reach out to you because I'm like, this is just so bizarre and crazy, and it just it well, like needs I said, to be it discussed. Was <laughs> yeah, it's my fault, so I had to have you on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's go get something to eat. All right, man. Um, so, when this does launch and when it's official, well, we, we can talk about it further, we will. Okay? Yep. Thank Good. you. Good. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. Appreciate you. Bye, everybody.
flipping heck. Yeah, flipping heck. Yeah, flipping heck. How about that? Whoa! Whoa, whoa, whoa. Come back to what you know. Make everything real Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Uh, what up, gang? Well, well, well. Wendy in the Galleria, we were just listening to uh, The Dark. Our good friend, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, uh, speaking with our good friend, Dr. Joseph Rogan. You know, um, whilst Kira the Don played music. And uh, if that isn't nice, I don't know what is, huh? That is nice, I don't know what is. God bless. God bless. Uh, shout out to everyone looking. How you're feeling out there? How is that for you? How is that experience for you on this fine afternoon here at the peak of recorded human civilization? Thank you to everyone uh, who super chatted during that. That was very nice of you. Uh, Joe Petrakovic, shout out to you. Mike Can, shout out to you. Uh, Trinidad, shout out to you. Yeah, shout out to you. Uh, what up, Robert Easley says, been missing Maslantis, not realizing it's good to be back. Yeah, it is. It's good to be here. My guy, Eric Hunley. Eric Hunley, you righteous crew. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday to you. Shouts out to Insight of the Ages. Appreciate the support. Says, love you, brother. Thank you for all your magic. You're doing God's work for us, and we are so blessed by it. Hey. Thank you for being here, brother. And thank you for the support. Bye, Joe. Sagittarius, what's up? Appreciate you, my guy. Pixie, what's up? Appreciate you. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Thank you so much, Akira. Righteousness. Righteousness be thy name. What a beautiful day. Woo, says Shaky Pavel. Cody King, what's up? Marie, what's up? John, what's up? Shout out to everyone who uh, hung out through that. Um, what was that? How long was that? hours hours that's what that was that was three hours plus three hours plus and the place oh my goodness beautiful stream says brother grim appreciate you free consciousness says you can bring the internet to church what up Austin says what's uh something about cop that new app complete with integrated dark mode ah integrated dark mode ha 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 what up mason Appreciate you. What up, Scoops? 21 months of Scoops. Says it's good to be part of a live stream again. Yeah, it is. It's good, it's good to have you here. Being a part of the live stream again. Look, the lights are on. Says Sergeant Tess. Yes, they are. Lights up in the club. Lights up in the club. Boom. Lights up in the club. Oh, my goodness. There is a few very tingly little moments in that. That was fire, says Chad. Another for the ages, says Sheila. Super awesome, says Shecky. Sheila above clapping, says Black and Blue Fins. And everyone, everyone can picture that, can't they? Isn't that nice? Everyone can picture that. Best stream ever, says Jordan. Uh, after Terry Black's Carnival meals, says Kobe. Yeah, I will be doing something similar. I'll do something. I'm going to eat a steak and go to the beach, I think. That's my plan. 
eat your steak and go to the beach. Oi. Jandra Ratzman says rave culture is weird. <laughs> yes, of course. All culture is weird. All culture is deeply weird. Blessed Sunday Tour says the triode in D. DDS. That was very intense. I forget how intense these things can be. I don't know how I forget that since I've done, I've done these things. I am no, you know what I mean? This ain't my first rodeo. But I haven't done one of those since we left Texas. Um, due to technological constraints. But last night I managed to work out a system and the system did indeed work. So that was pretty cool. That's pretty exciting. But uh, you can do such things. That was delightful. Thank you for that treat. It completely made my day, says NJ Edmonds. Appreciate you. That's nice. Nemo Overdrive. What's up? That's a dope name. Says, thank you, Akita, for your music. Hey, Denada. Denada. Hey, how was that then? What did anybody, what did everyone glean from that? What were people's takeaways from that, from that discussion? Uh, Sir Peppers has been AFK from Meaning Way for a while. That was great to listen. Hey, good to see you. Yeah. Good to see you here. Sheila Ferreira. Meaning crisis and chill, Viveki. Question, question, question. Uh, yeah, we got halfway through that, didn't we? And uh, we have a bunch more of those to do. Oh, by Jove, we do. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Mushroom King Wolf playing FOF, FO4 using this for ambiance. It was awesome. Yeah, how about that? How about that? Anything else would have been unacceptable, says Oster White Canadian. Quite right, too. Shecky says all systems go. Righteousness. Man and Nico, what a shame that half of this interview is a copy paste of the previous one. I just happened to have listened to it yesterday. Thought it was a rerun. Now he's on Timothy Leary again. <clears throat> Uh, Trinidad, Spirit of Voluntary Play, NJ Evans, do you ever think you'll go back to daily live streams, or is that a project left in the past? Uh, we spoke a little about this in the last stream. Um, so my current, uh, technological and spatial restraints do not allow that. However, things are shifting in that regard. Things are shifting in that regard. So we will discuss it more. Um, I love to chat about what God was throughout the Genesis stories. Music was perfect and the conversation moved me. Yeah, that's my favorite stuff. That's definitely my favorite stuff. I'm very interested in that stuff. We still have a bunch of the uh, biblical lectures left to score, don't we? How about that? Thank you, Kira, says Michael. Yes, yes, yes. Appreciate you. Sif Cypher says, good to hear JBP clarify his anonymity stance. Still not convinced, but mostly everything else he said was based. Yeah, so that's that stance, and it's good to hear him clarify that, uh, because uh, tweets on that subject, I don't think have. And this is something I think about quite a lot. You know. And it's a, it's a real good point. I've, I've tweeted, not tweeted, I posted, I did tweet about this. With regards to my not... As you all know, I'm in Mexico, uh, and I used to live in the USA. Uh, I'm, all my stuff is still in the USA, apart from the stuff I've accumulated in the past year or so. 
Uh, and I can't go back and get it because I didn't get uh, shanked. And uh, people are like, oh, well, why don't you just get like a fake card? You know, you could get a fake card. Lots of people do that. I know lots of people who do that. And my thing is, well, if everyone who did that refused, made themselves heard, were unanonymous, then it would be an untenable uh, policy. And it would also be untenable for the uh, airlines and what have you. Uh, the amount of people, you know, uh, mixed up in all that sort of thing. It would be untenable. So, so that's, that's a similar argument. Remaining anonymous with regards to things of import has a great effect on, uh, on what the swine uh, can get away with, you know? So it's an interesting discussion. It's an interesting conversation. And very, muy importante at this point. Muy importante at this point. Shout out to Nightbot, says type support for all the links to support. Yes, exactly. Support me anyway. PayPal, Patreon, YouTube channel, memberships and merch, etc. Indeed. Indeed. That's interesting. The night bus telling you to type something. You could have just dropped a link. Sif uh, Cypher says the fake shankage cards can only work in a pre-digital age. Exactly. Fake shank cards only work in a pre-digital age and they only work if you allow them in. Once you're in, you know, once the precedent is set and the system is set up, then you can't go back. You can't escape. Silence is golden, says Austin Zambrum. Trinidad says fire. Gracious Scale says, well done. Jeremy Brimmer says, he's got clout. Word around town, I heard something about that. Oh, stuck. What I got from it is consensus is politics slash gossip, meaning is truth. Never settle for anything less, be bold and brave. See, that's a very good, that's a very good summing up right there. I think that's something we can agree on. Meaning is truth. Never settle for anything less, be bold and brave. Be brave, brothers and sisters. Be brave. Shaky says, don't lie. A&B's, what's up? Thank you for this afternoon, Akira. It's been a wonderful year. So thank you. Appreciate you. It's an honor to be here amongst uh, such fine fellows as thou. What's the female word for fellow? you got ladies and gentlemen. What's fellows? Fellows, anyway. Sway! Feels good to continue the dialogue on education at many levels. A BA for 4K? Yeah, I'm assuming that's good, right? I don't know what a BA, how much a BA costs. I exited education at the age of 16. Uh, that kind of education, then educating myself. And educating myself continues on a daily basis. A literal daily basis. Uh, Sheila says you should play that Akira did on the meaning wave. Be brave. Be brave. That's a banger right there. Banger from the pre-meaning wave era. Mason says, love that idea of psychedelics in some capacity being removing memory from association with awareness. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one aspect. Uh, I believe uh, Huxley wrote about that in the Doors of the Gates of Perception in Heaven and Hell, I believe. 
job. Blast an auspicious evening. Lads and ladettes, go forth and make good choices. This is Sipsa. Thank you. Thank you. We have a sale on right now. Uh, at meaningwave.com. It's a January sale. We started it two days ago. At the end of January. It's running for uh, till the end of January, which is like tomorrow or some shit. I don't know. Uh, so open up a tab. Hit meaningwave.com. Go find yourself something dope. And uh, get 20% off of it with the code uh, FAV. No, not FAV. Jan. Code Jan. J-A-N. At checkout. Code J-A-N at checkout will get you uh, 20% off of your order at MeaningWave.com. Isn't that nice? Simultaneously, if you'd like to support the wave, uh, you can get on MeaningWave.com. You can hit the support page, uh, which will give you links uh, to PayPal and Cash App and Patreon and things like that. Links for that are in the broadcast. We have a Patreon. You can be a channel member. You can drop Super Chats. Uh, you can go buy some records on Bandcamp. You can become a member at Bandcamp. There's lots of things you can do if you want to split away. Of course, the most, uh, one of the most powerful things you can do is uh, let someone know about the existence of Meaning Wave, you know? You could, uh, what could you do? You know, you're, you know, in supermarkets, they have that thing. And people go, good. Marjorie, come over here. We've got uh, someone dropped a single egg on IL3, and those are worth $1,700 now. You could commandeer that and shout, Meaning Wave exists! You could film yourself doing so and send it to me. Right, that's a good idea. Ah, Rustin Nile says, We need you in the fan back in the States. Blue Wave says, Felt this conversation was classic JBP. Apart from the Anon stuff, it was 100% pure. Yeah, people don't like that. And I understand that. Um, I don't know. I follow, with regards to, say, Twitter, I follow loads of Anon accounts that are, like, really useful. And, uh, you know. But at the same time, as we just discussed, people publicly and uh, in their own person saying things of import is deeply, deeply necessary. And how? Great how. NJ Emmons says we've got that superhero music. Yes, we do, NJ Emmons. Ooh. Sheila says put up flyers, etch the sidewalk, spread the word every day, every day. Exactly. Checky says all day, every day, look at my shirt. Exactly. Huh. Alright, I said I'd play it earlier. This is pretty new. Came out last week. Pretty, pretty new. Shut up. I will dedicate this to you. Fucking 
chalk and milkshake. I know what it is. I know exactly what it is. But I can't want it more than you. And so many people just want it the easy way. I'm sorry, man. If not, not. What they start to do is they build this narrative. It's okay. When the narrative should be, you need to fucking work hard. You need to fucking discipline your mind better. We need to help people more than just saying it's okay. It's okay that you're not fucking willing to fucking help yourself out. That's not okay. It's not okay. It's not acceptable. You know it's your life. If that's acceptable, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. You know it's your life. That's unacceptable. And just saying it's okay. That's not okay. That's not okay. That's unacceptable. And there's a lot of people in this world, me included, that if I accepted that, I wouldn't be anywhere. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of people just fucking they they start creating a narrative about them that make it okay. The ultimate get out jail free card, and now the world is set up to have so many get out jail free cards. Everything is okay, and you can't say a motherfucking thing about it. It's not okay. It's not acceptable. You know it's your life. If that's acceptable, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. You know it's your life. That's unacceptable. Then just saying it's okay. That's not okay. That's not okay. That's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. You know it's your life. That's unacceptable. Then just saying it's okay. That's not okay. That's not okay. That's David Goggins, Unacceptable, brand new, out now. You can check that on your favorite streaming platform. You can download it. You can download it at meaningwave.com. You can download it at Bandcamp. Other places you download stuff. And you might want to start thinking about that. You might want to start thinking about that. We've already discussed the uh, problems with streaming services. We haven't discussed the fact that the Spotify business model is untenable and it's unlikely to last. So I would definitely advise you own the music you love. Download it when you can. Buy it on um, vinyl when you can. Buy it on cassettes when you can. Hold on. That's a banger. Hold tight for more new music coming soon. Got a brand new mixtape coming. Is it... Do you say this week on a Sunday or do you say next week? Anyway, we have a brand new full-length 
epic Meaning Wave mixtape dropping later this week. Some very powerful new music videos dropping this week. It's a beautiful day to be alive. It's a beautiful day to be a Meaning Wave enjoyer. Sif says, how are some tracks on SoundCloud not available in Ireland? This is discrimination. I don't know. Send me a message and I will hassle my distributor. But this is an example of why you should just download the music you love. And you're not worrying about because they've every literally every week I have problems with some streaming service has not got a record on there or they've removed one or one's not in one country, one's in another, so on and so forth. Own the music you love, brothers and sisters. Only you can save mankind. John says this joint is very acceptable. I agree. Uh huh, uh huh. Thank you for being here. I gotta go now. Dunk my head in some cold water and eat a steak. Maybe go to the beach. That might be nice. Thank you for being here. This was, uh, I'm really glad that worked. And uh, that was a joyful experiment. Let me know in the comments of this broadcast. You can drop comments in the broadcast. Let me know in the comments what you would like to see done uh, next or in the future in this manner, playing music over a podcast or something else. That live thing. Uh, since I can now do it, I think I might do more. Let me know what you want to hear. You know? Let me know what you want to hear. Trinidad says, Wolf, Alan Watts, Alan Watts, Vinyl, when? Mm. Mm, right, 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 right. Oh my goodness. Chad says, it was fire ACD. Appreciate you. Appreciate you Thank you all for being here. Uh, open up a tab, go miniwave.com, go buy yourself something nice, get 20% off with code JAN, J-A-N. Leave a comment to let me know what you want to hear next in this kind of a format. Go forth, be mighty. God bless you, bad motherfuckers. Splash. Hmm.